Chris, welcome to episode 178 of X-Lapsed, and uh, we're heading back to the uh, Boneyard today, the potentially haunted Boneyard, so let's get right into it. Now today we're going to be discussing X-Factor Volume 4, number 8, had a May 2021 cover date. Story's title is, um, hmm, might need a running start here, uh, Sweet Number 8, Skyo Me Nihil Skyri, Skiri? Uh, Tritone Substitution Jazz Arrangement. <clears throat> okay, we'll just uh, move along. Uh, written by Leo Williams with art by David Baldion. Colors Israel Silva. Letters VCs Joe Caramagna. Designs Tom Muller. Head of X is Hickman. Edits Andrews Bellasteros. Thomas White Sabolski. Cover price $3.99. This one went on sale March 10 of 2021. Now we open at the Boneyard. Duh. Uh, but we're not picking up right where we left off last issue. We're actually going to be stepping back a little bit before the cliffhanger reveal that ended X Factor number seven. If you recall, the cliffhanger was that basically everybody was dead. We don't know how that happened, but we're going to find out now. Now we've got North Star. He's sitting on the couch watching TV, uh, calling out to Aurora in order to uh, ruin her hot tub sexy time with Dakin. Dakin. Uh, I guess she excused herself to go pee. But instead was, uh, you know, lounging with uh, Dakin. Dakin. She's soaking wet, and uh, that's not a euphemism, and shame on you for thinking it was. Uh, John Paul remarks that it looks like she might have fallen in, which gets him a soppy, wet kick. I think the uh, most disturbing part of this scene is the fact that Aurora, while soaking wet, just plopped herself down on the couch. That's, nah, that's, a, that's a foul, isn't it? Uh, worth noting, well... Probably not worth noting, but they're watching an awful B-movie. What we get is a shot of the television, and we see a blonde woman and a bunch of birds. I'm not sure if this is, um, the birds. Uh, I don't know that that would be considered a B-movie. Uh, the only thing that comes to mind for me is that, uh, The Crows Have Eyes film that Maura Rose was in in Schitt's Creek. Maybe, uh, maybe we've just revealed a Maura-Moira connection. Uh, probably not. We jump over to Rachel's room, and Amazing Baby, the werewolf pup, is acting all sorts of fussy. Barking at things that aren't there, just making a real nuisance of himself while Rachel is trying to sleep. Now, we in the real world would uh, just refer to this phenomenon as owning a chihuahua. Because uh, if I had a nickel for every time mine bark at absolutely nothing throughout the day and or night, I'd probably break even on my comics bill and uh, then some. Now, Rachel decides to take A.B. outside, thinking maybe he just wants to sleep under the stars. Downstairs, she runs into I-Boy, who's standing there all creepy-like. Rachel tells him that the war wolf pup is being annoying and barking at nothing. 
and so he asks if Amazing Baby can come sleep with him, and A.B. seems more than happy to do so. As Rachel heads back to bed, Trevor tells Amazing Baby that he can see something strange, too. I'm not sure why he didn't just let Rachel in on this secret. Uh, He might have uh, saved a handful of lives if he did, but we'll get there. From here, double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. Our characters today will include North Star, Prodigy, Prestige, Eyeboy, Polaris, Dakin, Dakin, and Aurora with the Roll Eyes. We head over to Prodigy's room, where he's still investigating that photo of him making out with speed that we saw either last issue or the one before that. He's using some VR technology in order to break the image down into layers. Suddenly, however, a holographic face emerges from his monitor, which, as you might imagine, freaks him the F out. He rants about this uh, cheap, human-made tech, blaming it for the jump scare. Well, excuse us for not having access to Shi'ar technology there, Prodigy. Um, Now, we go from here to an info page. This breaks down the uh, making-out photo. Now, I do have a few years of forensic studies under my belt, but I've never had to deal with mutants and resurrection, so we'll, uh, we'll just let this page explain itself. We have the photo, and it's broken down into three layers, okay? The topmost one reveals that there had been some edits made to the photo. The second reveals the GPS coordinates and the date and time stamp of when this photo was taken. Also, the fact that David himself edited the photo in order to find it again later. He would tag Tommy or Speed in this photo to ensure he'd be aware of it and also give David an alibi. Not exactly sure what the alibi would be for, but maybe we'll find out. The third layer of the photo reveals that the photo was taken on Prodigy's old, pre-death, cell phone. So, the conclusions that are drawn here include, uh, you know, the originally believed cause of death for David was incorrect. Also, the photo was not taken at that club in West Hollywood, but it was posted from there. The photo was snapped on Prodigy's old phone, which he hasn't seen since being resurrected. The photo was taken and posted during a Cerebro blind spot meaning it, ha- it occurred right smack between Cerebro backups, one week before, one week after. I'm not sure why this wouldn't be included in the subsequent backup, unless he died before it. I'm not really sure. Uh, we wrap up this jam-packed info page with David wondering when and if he should involve X-Factor in this mystery. Let's head back to comics, and we're over to Dakin, Dakin who's uh, still soaking in the hot tub while dreaming of Aurora, And uh, he sees her in his dream, and he thanks her for saving him last issue. And uh, she tells him that uh, she didn't. And in fact, she didn't. It was Northstar was the one who saved him. This dream turns into a uh, Morrigan-fueled nightmare as Dakin, Dakin, is dragged under the water. He wakes up, pulls himself out, mutters something in Japanese, and leaves. Over to Eyeboy and Amazing Baby, who are huddled under a blanket waiting for the bad thing to go away. I think what we're supposed to be getting here is that Eyeboy's fear is so intense, and also that Dakin, Dakin's pheromone sensitivity is so strong that maybe it was Eyeboy that woke Dakin, Dakin up in the hot tub. I'm not sure, but whatever the case, Dakin, Dakin shows up to uh, tell both Trevor to shut the F up and also find out what's wrong. Then the Morrigan strikes. Eyeboy, Dakin, Dakin, and Amazing Baby run away. Which takes us to the cliffhanger from last issue, which doesn't feel quite as organic as it did last issue. I thought it was uh, that Dakin, Dakin, happened upon Prodigy and Eyeboy huddled in the TV room. But here, it's as though he and Trevor arrived together in fleeing the Morrigan. Maybe 
Maybe I'm misremembering. I don't know. Whatever the case, it's here where iBoy reveals that everybody else is dead. Prodigy uses iBoy's powers to examine the bodies of their fallen teammates. Now, they can find trace elements of hollyhock flowers, honey, and chalk, which I guess are three of Siren's favorite things, because uh, that's all Prodigy needs in order to give us an aha. Dakin Dakin then skirts out and prepares to kill him a Morrigan. He is unsuccessful, and is in fact killed himself. We turn the page, and bada-bing, bada-boom, X-Factor, in its entirety, are being resurrected. And uh, I guess it's a good thing they didn't all die. I mean, Prodigy and iBoy are still around. Otherwise, who would confirm that they were actually dead? We'd be in uh, X-Factor limbo forever. Northstar pops out of his gold ball, and he's met by his husband, Kyle. Now, Kyle asks one of those inconvenient questions that we love so, so much here on the show. He asks if this John Paul is really his John Paul. And, I mean, it's a, it's a good question, isn't it? Um, and I believe we did go into depth on this idea when Orphan Maker made the same observation in light of uh, one of Empath's many deaths over in Hellions. It's like, hey, he, he looks like the same guy, and he remembers a lot of the stuff as the same guy, but is he actually the same guy? It's a, a tough question. Kyle does not ask if they're still married, though, which, I mean... Technically, uh, till death to us part has already passed, and I guess that could be kind of a sticky wicket. Now, Northstar is able to convince him that he's the real deal by threatening to give him, like, a, a slimy dry hump or something. Rachel pops out of her gold ball, and Amazing Baby immediately jumps into her lap. Aurora and Dakin, Dakin wake up, with the former asking the latter what he remembers. And the last thing he remembers is being impaled in the snow. Now that means he doesn't remember Northstar rescuing him, nor the scene that he shared with Aurora in the hot tub. Lorna wakes up, and she's just so mad that the Morgan chose to kill her in her sleep. Professor X tells her not to beat herself up, and Polaris asks Charles not to tell her father about this, though I would have to assume he already knows. Now the gimmick here is the Morgan reanimated the bodies of the Boneyard's cadaver farm, including the dead X-Factor characters, so we've got us a zombie haunted house situation going on. And so, for the remainder of the issue, X-Factor takes back the Boneyard. And if I'm being completely honest, it's fairly underwhelming and rushed. Um, Lorna and Rachel, uh, they use the combined cab stare to drive the Morrigan from Siren's body. And uh, Siren is free, at least for now. Uh, she feels that the Morrigan is trying to uh, reassert itself or herself, but... That is where we leave it. We do close out with an info page, and it's an email exchange between Professor X and Northstar. Charles comments that iBoy's powers might be more than meets the, uh, well, you know. He asks that Northstar keep him apprised on, on all of this. To which, John Paul replies with a single word. And that word is no. That's where we leave it. Next episode, we go back to black. King in black. It's sword number four. But now let's uh, have some thoughts and theories on this issue of X-Factor. Um, my main takeaway here is that it felt a little bit truncated. Like, I don't know if we're trying to wrap this story up before the Hellfire Gala happens. Um, and part of me wonders if the gala is happening as originally scheduled. Like, even from, like, a year ago, they already had this kind of penciled in for June 2021. And if that's the case... I suppose the argument can certainly be made for the stories between X of Swords and the Gala being, well, truncated, kind of squished. 
X of Swords was supposed to occur, if I'm not mistaken, during the late summer of 2020. I believe the, uh, I mean, the free comic book day thing was supposed to come out in May, and that was uh, heavily leaning into uh, the launch of that event. But instead, due to the COVID hiatus, it didn't hit until uh, probably late fallish. And I figured that that could certainly put a crimp on these opening uh, Reign of X stories. So maybe that's why I feel this way, or I don't know, maybe I'm just uh, making it up all in my uh, my own head here. Now, I think we left uh, a great deal of, I don't know, story capital on the table here. Uh, picture X-Factor fighting zombie versions of their own corpses. You know, reanimated versions of their previous selves here. We saw, I believe it was Aurora, like, drop-kicking dead Dakin, Dakin, you know, in the uh, in the boneyard there. The zombified, reanimated corpse of, of Dakin, Dakin. Now... I'm not a fan of zombie stories. I think they're more often than not uh, woefully dull and overdone and a little LOL random because I guess we all love zombies. But in this case, uh, it offers some excellent food for thought. Because here we have the members of X-Factor fighting their own previous bodies, right? Which, I mean, we've got questions in this issue from Kyle uh, saying, how can I be sure this is the real you to North Star? That might lend a bit of a crisis for our resurrected characters when faced off against their former selves or their former teammates here. Like, uh, which of the two would we consider to be realer, right? Is it the previous body who should be viewed as the real or maybe the prime version of our characters? Or would it be the new one, the newly resurrected? Maybe both? Maybe neither? Maybe that's why we don't want dupes on the island? Uh, I don't know. I just think that uh, this could have been... A fun angle to explore And instead It was a scene that was kind of glazed over Really, really quick You know, it was all building to um, Lorna and Rachel uh, Doing the cab ass stare And driving Morgan out of the uh, out of uh, Siren's body Really didn't get much of the uh, Of the battle inside the boneyard Unfortunately Another big takeaway from this issue for me Is the, uh, the last page The email, the info page Where Professor X is saying, hey, I've noticed that iBoy is, a uh, he's, his powers are kind of souping up here. Um, hey, uh, hey, uh, you know, Jean-Paul, how about you, you keep me apprised on all this stuff here, to which Northstar, who doesn't seem to trust the Quiet Council to begin with, is just like, nope, <laughs> not going to be doing that. I'm not reporting anything back to you guys. I like this a lot. I like this a lot because, I mean, we can look at it a couple of ways here. If iBoy can see a lot of stuff, well, there's something on the island that uh, Professor X would probably prefer he didn't see. And uh, maybe his abilities can, uh, maybe they can find more as no place, right? I mean, that stands to reason. Also, I mean, we've been learning that iBoy's powers are, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the pun again, I apologize, they are more than meets the eye. So who's to say there isn't a uh, maybe a precognitive element to his powers here? Maybe he can, yeah. Maybe we, you know he can see things. Can he see through time? Is that something he can do? Is that something he's learning to do? Is that something that's manifesting in him? It's possible, and uh, we know that uh, precogs are a no go on Krakoa. So I think it's very telling that the professor wants to know more about this, and it's also uh, equally telling that uh, North Star is not. He's not going to play ball. 
I like this, and I really hope it's going somewhere. So ultimately, what we got here is a fairly strong issue. The only problems I have with it, outside of the suspected truncation, which, again, I, I don't know if that's actually the case or if this is just the way the stories are, are, was always going to be told, but I can, uh, I suppose I can complain a little bit about the overuse of death in these books again. <laughs> I mean, we just killed off nearly an entire team. Like, an entire cast of a book, minus two characters, was just killed. And I feel like we felt nothing. There was no mourning. There were no stakes. Hell, the deaths mostly happened off-panel. You know, we didn't even get to see what happened here. Though, in fairness, I guess North Star and Aurora being Alpha Flight alums ensures that this wasn't the first time that that happened for them, uh, they die a lot off panel over in Alpha Flight. Well, not in Alpha Flight, but in books that like to cite Alpha Flight, like uh, a lot of uh, a lot of Bendis era Avengers. Like, ah, oh, Alpha Flight just died. Oh, cool. Can we see them? Nah, no. Nah, just take our word for it. They they died. But what I'm trying to say here is, uh, you know, death as has been, you know, the the custom since Hawksbox here is a uh, just gratuitously used. It's just a steak killer that I think it's going to be really, really hard to walk back. You know, this is a genie that it's going to take a lot of machinations to get it back in the bottle in a satisfying way. And I mean, I'm not saying that there isn't a way they can do it. It's just uh, I don't know how much damage we're doing right now to where death will ever be credible again. You know, I I, I long for the day where it is. Then again, this is comics, and uh, I can't remember a time where death was credible. So maybe I'm just a uh, I'm nostalgic for times that never existed or I never experienced, but uh, I think that's all I got to say about this issue here. Mostly good, a little bit of a sprint to the end, and uh, just more mutant deaths. If you're reading and enjoying X-Factor like I am, you're, you're going to mostly enjoy this, so I would definitely recommend checking it out. But from here, let's hop into the mailbag here. We got a couple of letters here. One is... A little challenging, I'm going to be completely honest with you, but we will start with a letter from Andrew Franklin talking about Hellions number 10. He says, My first draft of this email was just the sentence, Hellions is good, over and over again. And even though that's true, I figure it needed a little bit more substance to it. I mean, you just uh, hit the nail on the head here with my big problem doing episodes about Hellions, because that's all I want to say over and over again. I love the book. And I feel like, you know, it's like I gush so much about it. And I think I say, like, if you're not reading Hellions, read Hellions like a million times every single time I cover it. So it's a it's one of those good news, bad news situations. Like I put it, Uh, it's a book I love to read. It's a book I love to write about. It's a book that I love to think about. It's a book that I love to anticipate. But when it comes down to actually putting it all into words, I'm just a. Hardly talented enough to do so, other than being like, hey, this is really good. Uh, Andrew continues, Something I like about this series is how, how each story has a setup issue where the team gets their missions. Most of the other books just sort of meander through their stories or have arcs that kind of blend into each other. But the clear-cut, get-mission-go-on-mission-repeat story structure really works for this book. And I love that you said that, because I feel like in any other era, we would see something like this as very formulaic, and we'd probably call it out for that. You know, it's like, ah, well, this is the issue where they get the mission, this is when they go, this is when they almost lose, this is when they win, this is when they come back. And I mean, at the end of the day, it is a formulaic approach. It just 
everything is so different nowadays where, as you said, a lot of these stories just blend into one another. A lot of them, I mean, we have the flagship book. We have X-Men, which feels like just a series of part ones. You know, it feels like nothing ever gets solved. Nothing ever gets resolved. It's just like, hey, here's a really good idea I had. And here's 20 pages on it, and maybe we'll get back to it sometime down the line. And then we don't, or we wait a year, and then then maybe get back to it. Here with Hellions, it is just so traditional that it's refreshing in, in a way here. We do get, like, a, a very structured approach. And, I mean, the missions in and of themselves are interesting, but they're not really the meat and potatoes of the story here. The story is these broken characters, and... The missions are just the backdrop here. And, of course, you know, facilitating story beats. But, I mean, it's just, it's wonderful. It really, really is. Andrew continues. It was interesting to see Sinister in such a vulnerable position. Usually he's the torturer, so having him be the helpless victim is pretty novel. Having him paired with Arcade is very fun. Zeb Wells is very good at writing these weirdo psychopaths. He seems to be very good at using classic non-A-list villains and making them very threatening. I think the way he's using Mastermind is appropriately powerful and a clever use of his abilities. And, I mean, you hit it again. You hit it again here. I think, you know, growing up as a fan in the 90s, we knew which characters were the ones we needed to care about and which ones were kind of the jokey ones, right? But then we went into the 2000s where there was a... It was sort of an overcorrection, you know? It wasn't just making a formerly silly character into a threat. It was turning a usually silly character into the threat, you know? Look at, like, uh, Blackest Night over at DC. We had Black Hand, who was a goofy villain. It was the, the villain who would, you know, talk in riddles and rhymes and stuff and, and in turns of phrase. Was, was like, he, had, he was a weird gimmick character. He was a joke. I mean, Guy Gardner and Ice, you know, beat him up at the, at the porno theater at the, during their little date in, uh, in Justice League uh, International or Justice League America, whichever, whichever title it was going by at the time. But Jeff Johns turned him into the threat, like the biggest threat. And I feel like we've had that happen in Marvel as well, where you, there's no calibration. It's like, okay, this silly character, I like, what was the one that, was it... Not fear itself, um, boy, original sin, where they brought the uh, the one with the eyeball for a head. I don't remember his name, but like he was just a jokey villain with an eyeball for his head, and then it's like, no, 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 he is the big threat. Brian Vaughn introduces a street level character, the Hood. Bendis takes him, and oh, this is the main threat. There's no calibration. Where with Arcade here, he's not the main threat in the universe. He's just a psychopath who is now. Being treated a little bit differently He's still silly and He's still sick, he's still dangerous But now he it's just a new Modern twist that knows like where How far to push the envelope, right? It's not, he's not the big bad of the universe He's just a big bad For a story arc, and I really, really Dig it uh, Andrew continues I continue to really enjoy the character work Wells does with the team Particularly with Psylocke and Grey Crow He's really using the Fallen Angel Psylocke stuff to good effect, though I do agree with you that the Betsy Quinan stuff is getting played out, even if it was done well in this issue. The exploration of John Greycrow's character might be the thing I expected the least out of this book, yet enjoy the most. As far as I know, this is all new stuff, but it's done a remarkable job at humanizing a character who is basically the gun guy on a team of murderers. Yeah, you know, um, I didn't expect 
I mean, I expected nothing from Hellions when we started this run. Um, just looking at the cover of the first issue, I, I'm pretty sure I audibly groaned. You know, outside of Havoc, it was just like, okay, Wild Child, I don't care about Wild Child. Quanon, oh boy, we just had Fallen Angels, I don't care about Quanon. Oh, Grey Crow, I don't care about that guy. Nanny and the Orphan Maker, I'll get them out of my face. I, I didn't have any in Empath. I mean, Empath is okay. But I didn't have any hopes. And here we are, and these, I mean, really making, uh, you know, lemonade out of some lemons here, where Grey Crow is a three-dimensional character now. We care about him. We care about his likes, his fears. I mean, it looks like he might be romantically entangled with Quanon somewhere down the line, and I'm looking forward to seeing that play out, which I never would have thought I'd say. Uh, Quanon here, we're actually using... The Fallen Angel stuff I mean, the stuff with Apoth and the daughter It's all coming back But it's being done in such a way where It's less poetic It's less, uh, you know, uh, speaking in riddles It's more real It feels real And we know that uh, We know that Psylocke is a She's a tortured character But not in like the purple prosy sort of way Like it was in Fallen Angels This is more of a Person who's stuck between a rock and a hard place here She owes Sinister a uh, a kindness, you know, for the kindness he did to her And uh, she's just trying not to rock the boat But still, she has to kind of maintain this team She's got to maintain her focus on the team It's it's a very interesting um, situation that she's in And I can't believe that, uh, that Wells was able to uh, humanize so many of these I mean, Orphan Maker, he, he, we see... So many human elements to Orphan Maker. Uh, Nanny's got a mystery going on. Wild Child has this weird alpha thing going on. It's just, I mean, he's knocking it out of the park here over and over again. Uh, Andrew continues. Putting the Hellions in Murder World was a great idea. I think this story really suits this book, and it's just exciting to see Arcade and Mastermind again and have them be more than jokes. I can't wait to see how the team escapes and how messed up they continue to become. So until we learn what shady deals Sinister and Mastermind were shadily setting up at this story's beginning, make mine X lapsed. Oh, I can't wait to see how they escape. And I hope, I mean, I mentioned this during that episode, but it's like, I hope Sinister is still chained into the chair, maybe with a few teeth missing when they get out, just so they can laugh at him. I, I hope that happens. But uh, thank you so much for, uh, for writing in and for talking about that wonderful, wonderful issue of that wonderful, wonderful series, Hellions. Now, for a, um, a challenging email here, um, I got this about a week and a half ago. It was in my spam folder. So uh, over the past several episodes when I was complaining about not having any mail, well, I actually had a piece of mail, I just didn't know it. But uh, I need to be better about checking my spam folder because I would have missed this one. And I think, um, I think Nicholas wrote in not too long ago and it went to my spam folder as well. So I, that one was delayed in response as well. But today, we've got one from another Chris, uh, and it's regarding Marvel's voices, and it's, uh, it's going to be challenging. Um, he says, hello, Chris. I hope this email finds you well. I had something I wanted to say about Marvel voices. I'm glad you got something out of this book, and I'm happy you seem to enjoy it. But speaking as someone who is likely in Marvel's target demographic for this comic, I can't help but to find it a little bit pandering. Are they good stories? 
They're okay, nothing to write home about, and yet it's like all the reviewers on the internet are treating it like it's some sort of modern-day classic out of fear of being called a racist. I don't mean to say anyone, yourself included, is wrong to appreciate these comics, but let's hold back from referring to it like it's the second coming. Just something I needed to get off my chest? Thank you for everything you do. This podcast has helped me get through these last few months of the pandemic, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who feels that way. Well, first, um, thank you for the kind words here. Uh, that really, really means a lot to me. Um, I've I've actually heard from a few people that having a uh, steady stream of shows has been uh, a source of stability um, and, I guess, reliability in these weird times. So that really means a lot to me that folks are... Uh, would bring that up and comment on that. Um, now, as for the rest of the email here, um, and I always get a little bit trepidatious when it comes to things like, you know, uh, things that could be hot button, you know, things like race. But I will, uh, I'll do my best to address at least this issue. Um, and I know I've spoken before about the hyperbolic nature of comic reviewers on the internet. Uh, everything's either a 0 out of 10 or a 10 out of 10. There, there's no room for a below average or average or above average. It's just best thing ever or worst thing ever. And uh, this was neither of that, you know, neither of those, if I can speak correctly. Um, I would say that this was probably a solid 7.5, maybe 8. And I, I didn't read all of it. You know, all I read were the uh, were the ex-pertinent uh, chapters in it. So, I mean, the other stories might blow me away or they might turn me off. I, I really couldn't say. So I can only speak to uh, the three or four stories that we covered. We got the, uh, there was that Forge one. Um, I think there were two Wolverine ones. There was the Emma Frost single page uh, little thing with uh, with the diamond or whatever. And I mean, they were they were fine. They were fine. The uh, the strongest one out of them was probably the Forge and uh, Shuri race um, around the world. That was a fun story. The other three were they were nice. They were inoffensive. They didn't. Uh, I mean, they didn't rock my socks, but they also didn't set them on fire either. And I think I went into this uh, comic with an expectation of what it was going to be. I thought it was going to go one way. I thought it was going to be angry. And perhaps when I read it and realized that that wasn't the case, maybe I overcorrected, you know? Um, I think I was probably a little bit more even-handed with my discussion of the Indigenous Voices uh, installment. I think I referred to those stories as being like X-Men Unlimited fodder. And, and you know, that isn't to say that they're bad uh, or anything like that. It's just uh, they didn't move me one way or the other. I may have also gotten caught up with uh, how important I think uh, initiatives and anthologies like this are and will continue to be. Uh, one of the things that I stressed during the conversation is that uh, the comics industry right now seems to be in a, uh, not to be a you know doomsayer or anything like that, it feels like we're shrinking every single day. And that's from fans to pros, to the entire industry. It feels like it gets smaller every single day. So anytime I see more voices, no, no pun intended, come into, into the hobby, into the industry, more people reading comics, more people discussing comics, more people creating comics, I feel like that's a good thing. You know, I feel like that's a really good thing, and I was very happy to see that in action here. Um... One of the things I'm most proud of in doing this program is that uh, 
I've met so many wonderful people who have lived a different, who have had different human experiences than I've had, you know, where we can learn from one another. And, and I've even received a handful of emails from folks thanking me for ensuring that this program is an inclusive place where uh, everybody's welcome, everybody has a voice, and uh, there's no judgment on anybody. Everybody is just welcome to, to take part and engage and just escape life for a while and, uh, you know, talk about uh, these silly comic books. Um, and, I mean, I hope this doesn't, doesn't come across as too, like, Pollyanna-ish or anything, but uh, it's honestly how I feel here. I want as many people into comics as possible. Not the movies, not the TV shows, not the uh, video games or action figures, just those books that we talk about, those books where all this stuff originated. I, I would love to have more people interested, more people involved in the process and in the discussion. I feel like that's just a, a good thing for the longevity of the industry, and uh, perhaps that's why I may have come across as a little too... Uh, I guess, positive or rah-rah on the uh, Marvel Voices thing. And again, that's not me saying that I suddenly like these stories less, because that's that's not the case. That's not the case at all. But uh, I do want to thank you for writing in and for challenging uh, me there, and I hope uh, that the other Chris will continue to write in and share, uh, share his thoughts. So uh, thanks so much for uh, that. And that is where we'll leave it here. If anybody out there has any uh, strong opinions either way, uh, please feel free to write in. If you have any strong opinions about anything that we talk about or anything at all, I suppose, feel free to write in. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, or you can talk to us on Facebook, where I actually posed this question. I hope... Uh, the other Chris doesn't mind. I did pose this question on the Facebook group to get some more opinions on uh, both the book as well as uh, my coverage of it. So uh, if you want to join in on that conversation, it's, it's 90s X-Men on Facebook. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere you hear noise. And if you like what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort behind it, I would uh, beg you to tell a friend or two, <laughs> let them know that this show exists, and... Uh, Maybe it's something that they'd enjoy. But I think that'll do it for today. I'd like to thank everyone so much for sharing a little bit of your day with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. And you may find yourself in a beautiful house.
How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 195 of X-Lapsed. And, uh, well, I can't speak for everybody, but this is certainly the one I've been waiting for for a long time. Kind of like, uh, ever since X-Men number 7, all those months ago. And, uh, I guess well over a year ago in, in publication time, innit? So we got a lot to talk about. So without further ado, let's hop right on in to Way of X number 1. It's had a June 2021 cover date. The story's called... Way of X. Written by Cy Spurrier with art by Bob Quinn. Colors, Java Tartaglia. Letters, VCs, Clayton Cowles. Designs, Tom Mullahead of X's Hickman. Edits, Andrews Ballesteros. Thomas White Sobolski. Cover price, $5. This one went on sale April 21 of 2021. And we open with Professor X being startled awake by a vision of a strange-looking individual... And it is worth noting that this is a rare occasion where Xavier isn't wearing the Cerebro helmet. So, uh, I guess we can assume he doesn't actually sleep with the thing on. It's nice to see his, uh, his face, uh, for the first time in a very long time. Now, he psychically reaches out to Nightcrawler, uh, and he initially seems rather desperate to get some sort of assistance. But he pulls, he quickly pulls back, um, and he suggests to Kurt that he was just reaching out to wish he and his team luck on their mission in Venice. Now, Nightcrawler ain't buying it, and really, nor should he. He assumes there's something the professor isn't telling him, but doesn't really press the issue. It's worth noting that uh, Xavier is looking at some photos on his dresser at this point, and in particular, one with Gabriel Haller holding their baby boy, David. And also, while looking at these photos, we can see one with his and Lalandra's daughter, Zandra, and I think his and Mystique's from, like, another dimension or something like that. Um, but that's not important here. We're, we're really paying attention to the hauler photo. From here, we get our double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. Our characters will include Nightcrawler and uh, a whole bunch of uh, X-Men wallpaper. Um, and, and some other folks as well. We got Nightcrawler, Blink, Professor X, DJ, Dr. Nemesis, Exodus, Loa, Magneto, and Pixie. From here, it's an info page, and uh, it's an excerpt from the Book of Redacted, which is uh, my personal favorite gospel. And this is a good one. It's clearly written by Nightcrawler, expressing uh, a bit of the concern that we did see pop up way back in X-Men number 7, like 100 years ago. And uh, we're going to get really deep into this as we move through this issue. There's, there's a lot of this in here, and it's, it's, all, it's all very, very wonderful. Now, back to comics. And we find ourselves at the Redacted Seminary in Venice with Kurt and his team. Now, it turns out this place has been uh, modeled into something of a uh, hate museum, a museum of hate, which is focused on fomenting the old classic fear and or hate against mutant kind. Um, we see several statues of evil mutants here, uh, probably to further drive the point home and help indoctrinate anyone who uh, may feel sympathetic toward the mutants and their, their cause and their plight. And among these statues, we see Apocalypse, Sabretooth, some Acolytes, Dark Phoenix, and Omega Red. Now, Nightcrawler's team is, uh, like I mentioned, X-Men wallpaper. We got Pixie, Blink, Loa, and DJ. They are uh, busy talking about death. Nightcrawler's not here. It's just the kids right now. They're talking about death. And Pixie wonders if they should check in with Kurt, because he's inspecting the rest of the building, trying to figure out exactly 
who's behind this hate museum here? Now, hearing Pixie's concern, DJ tells her not to be such a Wanda, which I think is going to be an insult I'm going to try to add to my everyday vernacular. If uh, somebody's getting on my nerves or acting a little too precious, I'll just say, hey, don't be a Wanda. Now, Blink suggests that Pixie's only on edge because she's, uh, well, she's kind of a virgin, um, a death virgin. You know, uh, she hasn't died and been gold-balled yet, and she might be the only one at this point. Um, And, I mean, can you believe they're actually holding this against her? I mean, this is is really excellent stuff here. I'm, this is, it's subtle enough, but it's definitely showing how the tone regarding death has changed since Hoxpox here, where Pixie is almost being mocked, or actually, in a way, being mocked for never having... Died, never having been gold-balled back It's it's interesting And uh, we're going to get more of this as we go along And I don't know how many more times I'm going to say We're going to get more of this as we go along But trust me when I say we will It's going to be very, very fun Now, it's almost as though The kids are framing death as like a rite of passage Or a coming-of-age moment And uh, Pixie is still quite uncomfortable With uh, the concept here Loa tells her, hey, ain't no big Just, uh, you know Think happy thoughts. Think about your favorite food when you're just about to bite it, right? And Pixie's like, well, you know what? My favorite food changes all the time. Yesterday it was sushi. Today it's whatever the hell a cheese toasty is. Um, I'm guessing maybe that's a British thing. Apologies, I guess. Um, and it might seem like there's no reason for, you to, for me to mention this little food bit, but just, just trust me, it will come back again. Now, DJ teases Pixie, saying he bets that she's just scared that the patchwork man will get her. Huh. I hear you asking, who is that? Well, we'll get there. Nightcrawler pops back in, and he asks about the Patchwork Man. He hears the end of this conversation. DJ writes the Patchwork Man off as just a scary story that the kids tell on crack. As in Krakoa, um, without the Oa and not the street drug, though I suppose either one would make sense in this situation. Kurt reveals that he was able to deduce that this place was funded by... Orcus. Hey, you remember them? Remember those guys? Huh. In the next room over, we see a bunch of uh, Orcus disciples being indoctrinated. They're being shown a whole bunch of mutant atrocities in order to foment their loyalty to the cause and their hatred toward mutant kind. Now, while Kurt and the kids listen in, another Orcus fellow pops into the hallway from another entry, and he announces very, very loudly that the abominations are among them here, and before we know it, our heroes are surrounded by Orcus's info page. And uh, it's the Orcus protocol page that we already saw in Sword Number 3. It's where we found out that Henry Peter Gyrick is in charge of Orcus infrastructure and influence. And it was heavily, heavily redacted in Sword. It's a little less redacted here, but doesn't reveal all that much more here. We don't get any new names. It's uh, just a few extra words here. Nothing really worth uh, combing over. Back to comics, and Kurt's team doesn't seem to have all that much trouble taking down the Orcus goons. Pixie blows some dust at them, which makes them see her as an angel. But then, an Orcus soldier wearing a gas mask bursts in, so the Pixie dust is useless. And so, Pixie decides that she's going to make it so the bedazzled Orcus folks experience some crazy trauma. And, well, she walks right up to the gas mask soldier and allows herself to have her head blown off. 
Nightcrawler is appalled by this, and, and rightfully so, but the rest of the crew applauds Pixie for popping her death cherry. Huh. Now, Kurt takes out the, ca- the gas mask soldier, while the rest of the Orcus goons shiver in the corner because, I mean, they just saw someone they saw as an angel getting her head blown off, so they are, uh, they're kind of done with it. Blink sees the apologetic goons as a sign that Pixie did the right thing. Kurt does not agree. I agree with Kurt. Um, Loa tells him, basically, chill out. Because Pixie will be back before he knows it. And he's like, well, that's not really the point, is it? And I mean, <laughs> I mean, where has this book been? This is, this is wonderful. This is the kind of stuff we've needed to talk about for like a year and a half now. It's the stuff, it's basically our mailbag in, in sequential art form here. It's wonderful. Now, Kurt says that this is all wrong. But when asked to explain why it's wrong... He can't. Blink tells him to lighten up and reminds him that he used to be fun. Huh, that's, that's, that's the way to open up a series, isn't it? Um, wow, okay. We're going to scene shift here. We're going back to Krakoa. Nightcrawler has summoned Magneto to the Green Lagoon to show him something that he'd found at the Hate Museum. And it's a statue. It's a statue of Magneto posed in a way to evoke the events from X-Men Volume 1, Number 1 from 1963 which we actually just recently talked about in the ex- the Essential X-Lab series, Episode 1, which is available in the archives. And he is in full-on, like, big-horned helmet mode here and is directing missiles. Uh, several classic X-characters are here for the reveal, and they're having a grand laugh at old Magnus. We've got Colossus, Gene, Dazzler, Forge, Bobby, Wolverine, Havoc, Jubilee, and Banshee, among others. And Magneto realizes that... Uh, this little show is uh, being put on to uh, poke fun at him, basically, and not much more. Info page, and it's a newspaper clipping recounting the events of X-Men number one using some original Kirby art, including the cover image from X-Men volume one number one. The clipping is written in such a way as to uh, humiliate Magneto for losing to a group of children. Back to comics, and Magneto sees this as an opportunity to go like full-blown pro wrestling promo here. He plays it completely straight and, uh, like, almost goes into, like, bloviating, uh, talking about how he's learned from the errors of his past and they're in a, you know, post-mortal society now. And then he uses his powers to crush the missile part of the statue and he leaves. Nightcrawler follows and asks, like, what in the hell was that all about? And Magneto turns to him and says that was a sermon and kind of throws sermoning in Nightcrawler's face as a priest. And he makes it clear that he did not appreciate the attempt at making fun of him. He suggests that Kurt's time would be much better spent finally getting around to starting that mutant religion he spoke of like a hundred years ago. Kurt hems and haws here, and uh, says that this little attempt at levity was, well, basically just that. A little laughter to counteract the horrors of this place, i.e. the Crucible. Magneto smirks, because he was just reminded that tonight is Crucible Night. Kurt says, uh, you know, it's nothing more than murder. And Magneto scoffs at this. He tells Kurt that he's too worried about sinning against his, quote, dusty god, and that he's so hyper-focused on all the negative that he won't allow himself to enjoy any of the positive. And I, I love the fact here that nobody is even willing to humor Nightcrawler's concerns here. He's 
basically being written off as like a buzzkill, a negative Nelly, right? Despite the fact that he's really the only person here who seems to see the complete picture. He's looking at things good and bad, where everyone, everybody else just, they don't have time to worry about the bad. It's all about the good. It's all about the party. It's all about immortality. And Nightcrawler is, uh, you know, he talked about the cracks in the foundations, right? And he's the one who can see them. And this is... I hope this doesn't sound like I'm gushing too much, but uh, this is good stuff. Info page, and we see the Krakoa of the Pacific and the, you know, the little uh, five sum of islands in the Atlantic, and we also see a redacted pending panel. I'm not sure exactly what this is. Maybe it's Arako, maybe it's Emma's new Faroe Island, maybe it's Island M, maybe it's a Krakoa yet to be discovered. I don't know. Back to comics, and Nightcrawler is approached by a character who we will only know by the name Lost. Now, she is a newcomer to Krakoa and appears to be very, very warped physically. Now, she's been depowered, which we're going to learn quite a bit more in just a, a little bit. She comes to Kurt because she had heard that he was one of the kindly ones here. And we're going to find out exactly what she means by that, and uh, we'll also find out what she actually wants from Kurt in just a little bit. Nightcrawler, uh, he kind of blows her off here. He points her over to the blue building in the distance, the Krakoan welcoming hall, and it's the place where newbies can be, I guess, signed in. Um, now he reminds her that Krakoa is a sanctuary, a safe place, and then he bamfs away. Info page, more from the Book of Redacted. It's more about the realness of a mutant resurrection, and these are questions that we've been asking for months now. Nightcrawler, perhaps buying into the idea that he's just not allowing himself to enjoy this new age of mutantum, he asks questions, but then dismisses his own questions and concerns as being stupid. And uh, we learn that there are 23 different religions represented on Krakoa, but there are no churches or places of worship here. Back to comics, and Kurt is listening in on one of Exodus's sermons, and, I mean, we've seen a time or two throughout our coverage here where Exodus is taken to uh, sort of kind of indoctrinating the youth of Krakoa, you know, talking about the Scarlet Witch as the pretender, uh, all the atrocities uh, that humans or flat scans or however you want to call them have done against uh, mutants, um, stuff like that. Here, though, we're in the middle of a sermon, but the kids aren't really paying uh, as close atten attention as Exodus would like to the discussion at hand here. They're... More concerned with talking about the uh, the boogeyman, the uh, the little uh, schoolyard uh, boogeyman, the patchwork man. And Exodus, as you might imagine, is not too pleased about this, and he attempts to redirect the conversation over to the concept of the crucible. Then, Nightcrawler, who's still watching, he, he feels eyes on him, and he discovers that he's being watched by a Cy Spurrier favorite, Dr. Nemesis, who... Oh, God, oh, God, ugh. Oh, gee, he's... Oh, this this is disgusting. Um, he has, like, mushrooms growing out of his head? Oh, for F's sake, man, put your hat back on. Nobody wants to see that. I... Yeah. I, I don't even want to touch this page. I might throw up. Like, you ever, you ever like, see, like... Like, if you're going through an encyclopedia or something, and you see, like, a picture, like, a giant full-page picture of, like, a big hairy spider or something, and you don't even want to touch the page because it just skeeves you out... Seeing this dude with mushrooms growing out of his head. Oh, God. Oh, Let's turn the page here. We're on an info page about the Science Corps. 
Uh, Dr. Nemesis has petitioned for the formation of a Krakoan R&D unit. We've got several divisions, laboratories, and specialist studies, and uh, it's worth noting they all list Dr. Nemesis himself as being the director, supervisor, and specialist, except for one department, and that department is law and ethics, which, uh, well, if you know Dr. Nemesis, you know Dr. Nemesis. We're back to comics, and it would appear that Nemesis is crediting himself with creating the Miracle Mutant meds that kicked off this whole era, which is all new information for us here, though... How true it is remains to be seen. For all we know, he's just blowing smoke. But maybe not. They talk a bit about religion, because, well, that's kind of what we're doing in this book. Nemesis raises an uncomfortable and selective memory-based question. He says that since the Marvel Universe, he doesn't say the Marvel Universe, but since the world is literally full of gods, how come Nightcrawler believes in the only one he's never seen? Which... I mean, Nightcrawler was in heaven not too long ago, right? So, I don't know. Kurt suggests that not the not seeing him is what makes him honor his Christian god. But again, I'm pretty sure the Christian god has shown up a time or two in Marvel Comics. Anyway, Nemesis talks a bit about the Dunbar number, which reminds me of any time a teenager discovers like a concept like Schrodinger's cat and tries to shoehorn it into every conversation in order to let people know that he knows about Schrodinger's cat. Uh, Now, the Dunbar number is a real thing, and the way Nemesis explains it here is basically what it is. It's the idea that there's an upper limit on how many relationships the brain can handle at one time. And so, society, to be functional, requires abstractions and social rituals in order to hold them together at a more surface level here. Things that can be similar among a people. Things like, if we're talking about Krakoa, the Crucible. The Resurrection Protocols. These are things that unify the people of Krakoa as one. And without such things as this, rituals, customs, a society is at risk of collapse, falling apart. From here, we've seen shift into the Crucible, and we see our new friend Lost in the ring, and her uh, Crucifer is Magneto, and he appears to be absolutely relishing this opportunity to kill someone without recourse. Magneto is just beating the holy hell out of Lost, while telling her it's for her own good. He's actually presenting her with a gift, you see, you know. We know, the, uh, we know the way they spin the Crucible. Now, Lost catches Nightcrawler in the corner of her eye, and she tells him that she wanted him to be her Crucifer, as uh, he's, the, he's one of the kindly ones, right? He would do it probably a little less brutally than Magneto. Um, and, I mean, speaking of Magneto, he is absolutely ruthless here. Lost is on the ground, pummeled, and he demands she get up. You know, you stand... Kurt bamfs in to stop the proceedings, right? Now here, there aren't very many missed opportunities in this book, but I found one right here. Kurt bamfs in, right? He pushes Magneto off of Lost here, like trying to stop this from going down. And I think it would have been perfect had when this happened, you have the entire crowd start to boo Nightcrawler, right? Because as we're going to establish here, the crowd is... Absolutely foaming at the mouth for the Crucible You know, they love the Crucible They eat it up So when you have someone interfere and try to shut it down It stands to reason they should be booed, right? That doesn't happen here I wish they did, but, you know, we can't have everything 
Now, Lost pulls herself up, and we finally see her without her cloak. She has been wearing a cloak. We have been able to tell that she is warped, right? <clears throat> now, the, the body is way more warped than we had any idea it was without the cloak, and she kind of looks like skin from Generation X, but even weirder. Now, Magneto manifests a knife out of random shards of metal, and then finally just drives it right through Lost's heart. And the crowd goes wild. Dr. Nemesis scurries in to help Kurt up to his feet, and, you know, Kurt comments that Magneto's actions here don't bother him nearly as much as the adulation of the roaring crowd. And, again, this is something we've been talking about for ages here on the show, and I love that we're finally addressing it on the page. Speaking of pages, info page. Now, this is from the desk of Dr. Nemesis. Uh, Simon Spurrier likes Dr. Nemesis, you see. You might have figured that out by now. Now, the observation here is that those who choose to die in the Crucible are jumped ahead in the Resurrection in the resurrection queue. Nemesis suggests this might wind up, like, almost controlling population in a way, or informing population. It's going to skew the population of Krakoa over time, which would... Qualities like strength would be emphasized over others, and he refers to this as prejudicial, easy for me to say, prejudicial resurrection, which is an excellent point, isn't it? Um, I mean, just when we thought our food for thought plate was full, right, we get even more. We jump to the next morning where Lost emerges from her gold ball, having been repowered. But first... Kurt and Charles talk a bit about the religiosity of resurrections. It's worth noting, Xavier claims here to not be religious, which really isn't much of a surprise if you think about it. That said, he does agree with Kurt's observation that there ought to be a form of religious guidance on Krakoa. So Lost hatches, and we finally see her powers at play here. It has to do with gravitational pull, which makes everybody present, besides Kurt and Doc Nemesis, violently ill. And by violently ill, I mean power puking everywhere. Literal fountains of vomit. And still, Nemesis's fungal infection is way, way, way worse. Um, and, you know, hey, maybe this has nothing to do with Lost, and everybody just got a good look at Nemesis's head. I mean, that is disgusting. Now, Lost is ashamed of causing everyone to puke, and so she floats away, saying, I'm lost, I'm lost, I'm lost. Meanwhile, elsewhere in the hatchery, Pixie comes out. Now, out of the corner of her eye, she sees the patchwork man, but he disappears as quickly as he shows up. Then, Kurt approaches bearing gifts. Well, a gift. And it is uh, whatever the hell a cheese toasty is. Now, here's the thing, and this is why I mentioned the food earlier. Pixie doesn't remember craving a cheese toasty and only wants sushi. Now, this might not seem important, but I feel like it's worth mentioning, because before Pixie had died, she had changed her mind on what her favorite food was. Right? It was sushi, then it was the nebulous cheese toasty. But her last Cerebro backup occurred while she was still digging on the rainbow rolls. This is subtle, but at least to me, it plays into Nightcrawler's concerns that the real version of these characters isn't coming back. Again, it's subtle, and in the grander picture doesn't really mean much, but if we stop and think about it, which, I mean, is kind of what we do on the show, this pixie isn't the same one who died. Like, not completely, not 100%. It's the discontinuity between the pixies that really drives this point home, and that's why I mentioned the food thing earlier, because 
it is a sure sign that this Pixie is going to miss out on experiences that Pixie Prime had. No matter how benign, no matter how mundane, this isn't the same person. You see what I'm saying? Next, Professor X finally decides to confide in Kurt as to what was bothering him. And it comes down to the Patchwork Man, of course. Xavier refers to it as a presence, and likely an Omega-level one at that. Nightcrawler is the one who evokes the name of the mythical Patchwork Man here because, I mean, it's been coming up a lot. Kurt says he'll consider helping out, and that night he preys on it. After going to bed, the Patchwork Man actually invades his dream. And he doesn't do all that much, he just kind of stands there all weird, freaking us all out. All the while, Kurt hears Lost's voice, telling him over and over that he is one of the kindly ones. Which, uh, I mean, that's a toughie, isn't it? Info page. It's more the gospel of Kurt here, and he's uh, upset that death is treated so trivially, of course. He suggests that he's taken on missions uh, in order to distract himself from digging deeper into his concerns about the Krakoan way of life, or maybe the way of X, if you prefer, if, uh, if that's not going to be his religion, I don't know. But uh, we're getting a, an idea here that he has been just trying to keep himself busy so he doesn't stop to address his, his own concerns. And we saw in a previous info page that he's dismissing his concerns as being silly or stupid or foolish. Back to comics, and we have Nightcrawler visiting Blindfold's gravesite. Now, Blindfold was a young mutant, of course, and she had killed herself during the Rosenberg run, if I'm not mistaken. But in the years before that, it had been established that she had a relationship with the person on our last page reveal here, who is, um, well, it's another Spurrier favorite, Legion, who may or may not be the Patchwork Man, maybe? I don't know if it's a, a little bit of misdirection here or if, in fact, he is the Patchwork Man. Uh, Legion has multiple personalities. Patchwork Man kind of makes sense. I don't know. It's worth noting here that Blindfold is a precog, and the reason she killed herself is that she saw something coming that was terrifying to her, something she didn't want to uh, live to see. And we know that precogs are a huge no-no on Krakoa, which uh, explains why she still has a gravesite to be visited and isn't hanging around with other bits and pieces of X-Men wallpaper in the Academos habitat. But that's where we leave it. Legion shows up and uh, doesn't look like he's messing around. Next episode, we're looking at the next issue of X-Force. I believe it's X-Force number 19, but that's next time. Right now, let's talk Way of X. Well, hot damn, uh, this was uh, worth the wait. This was a wonderful, wonderful first issue. Um, I just love the fact that these questions that we've been asking for so long are finally showing up on the page here. It's almost like vindication, like, okay, we were right to notice all this stuff here, and the fact that it just wasn't mentioned very often, it made us question ourselves, or at least made me question myself. Like, am I thinking too hard about this? Am I... I don't know, it's, it's interesting because uh, we can almost put ourselves in Nightcrawler's shoes here where, like, I mean, we're being offered the, uh, the opportunity to read about our favorite characters and there's never a risk of them dying. But we can't enjoy it because we see the, uh, the flaws in that. We see the, uh, the precipice that we might be edging up against and... We worry about things like the future. We worry about things like a seat change in creative. We worry about, as I like to put it, walking this back. And Nightcrawler, he's talking about cracks in a foundation. And I think that's wonderful language to use because 
all of our stories, all of our characters, all of our mythologies need a foundation. And if the foundation is cracked, which this might be, how do you build, right? How do you tell stories? How do you build upon stories? How do you forward stories? How do you let characters grow if all we're doing is resetting them over and over and over again? These are some excellent questions here, and I mean, this <laughs> this was a great, great issue here. I can't say enough good about it here. Uh, I think if I were to make a complaint, it would be that Dr. Nemesis's head really, really grosses me out. Um, I wasn't exaggerating where I didn't even want to touch the page to turn it. It's like, oh, get that, get that off here. I suppose as long as he wears his hat in most appearances, I'll be able to get through it. I just hope he does. <laughs> this is very, very foul to look at. Um, let's start at the beginning. Pixie is um, looked at as immature, uh, relatively speaking, because she has not died. And it's so interesting because you look at a group of people, a group of comic book people, of course. Say you got five people. Four of them have died, one has not. You'd probably look at the one who hasn't as being a survivor. Like something about that one person who has not died, there's something to respect there. There's uh, self-preservation, there's a respect for life, uh, an appreciation for existence. But it's flipped on its ear here. Where, I mean, I, of course these are children, these are teenagers, uh, adolescents, but they flip the script here to the point where they're mocking her for never having died. As though that was a defect. Like there was something wrong with her for not having died. It's as though she's not trying hard enough. If you don't die, you're not trying hard enough. And so, in, in a way, they peer pressure her into walking into the business end of a shotgun. Which, wow. Um, a powerful scene. A very powerful scene. And when you have a character like Pixie, and we have not seen much of Pixie since Hoxpox uh, started here. We know Glob Herman had a crush on her, like, for five seconds. Uh, we did see her in the Runaways series that we uh, just covered not too long ago. So we know that she's around. She's bebopping around the, uh, the island. But I haven't really thought much about her. She's a comfortable presence, and every time you see her on panel, you do root for her. Or at least I do. And then you have her here, where she you know, basically commit suicide. Um, it, it just to traumatize the Orcus goons who uh, viewed her as an angel. I don't know that that's worth it. <laughs> I mean, I, let's, let's step back here. Pixie has dust powers, right? Can't she just make them see whatever the hell she wants them to see? Like, if she can make them see that she's an angel, can't she also make them see that she's an angel with its head blown off? I don't know, but instead she has to actually make it happen here, which I think is in large part to the pressure placed on her by her formerly deceased teammates. And uh, it's uh, it was a, it was a heck of a scene. Um, we don't get scenes quite that powerful very often, and for good reason, because we only we appreciate them more when they're not as frequent. But this was a good one. This was um, very very powerful and. Um, like, like I said, I don't really think about Pixie much, but when this happened, I was like, I felt the loss. And I think we were supposed to. Like, we were standing there just like Nightcrawler, like, this is wrong. This is not 
the way this should go. And everyone around him's like, ah, chill out. What, what's so wrong about it? And Nightcrawler cannot answer. Because at the end of the day, wrong-headed or not, the kids aren't wrong. You know? It does speak to more of the devaluing of life, um, the disrespecting of the gift of life. Um, but at the end of the day, Pixie showed up at the end of the issue. Right? She was jumped ahead in the queue, apparently, because she came back very, very quickly. Now, speaking of uh, jumping ahead in the queue, let's talk about Lost, our new friend here. Now, she was a depowered mutant who approached Kurt to do the honors for her. But she didn't make that clear. And, I mean, we've seen in these pages before where someone goes to another to ask if they'll do them the favor in the Crucible. We had Kalisto go to Storm, and Storm said, nope, don't want any part of that, but then decided to do so, you know. We had Cosmar over in New Mutants ask Danny Moonstar to do it, hopeful that she could be killed and then come back in a less deformed sort of a, sort of a figure, right? And Danny said no. Here, Lost doesn't exactly ask Kurt to do the favor. She just says, you're one of the kindly ones. To which Kurt was lost in his own thoughts, didn't really put two and two together, maybe just maybe just can't wrap his mind around being, and I know crucifer is the wrong word, but I, I just like saying the word crucifer. Um, I don't know that he can wrap his mind around being the crucifer in this situation here, someone who would kill someone else, regardless of what follows. So maybe he just wasn't thinking about it, maybe his mind was elsewhere. I mean, he did just get run down by Magneto for being... Kind of a stick in the mud and a failure, but uh, he blows Lost off. So, into the Crucible we go. Lost is absolutely destroyed by Magneto. Magneto is just, I mean, he is just shivering in delight with this opportunity, which is troubling, right? Um, as Nightcrawler put it, not quite as troubling as the adulation and roar of the crowd, which is very, very true, but we do see Nightcrawler watching this, and he even interferes. And like I said, I really wish they would have had the crowd boo him to try to interfere, but uh, they didn't. But he sees what happens here, and it's clear to him from what Lost says while she's in the Crucible that, oh, she wanted me to do the favor. Now, I don't have to remind anyone that Kurt is Catholic, and as a fellow Catholic, I know what guilt is. So, uh... I figure this is something that is going to weigh on Kurt. And as we saw in his nightmare, uh, he, all he did was hear the voice of Lost. You're one of the kindly ones. You're one of the kindly ones. Which haunted him. Because rather than uh, do the favor, put her out of her misery, I guess. Uh, because we do find out, and I neglected to mention this during the synopsis, but her being warped without her powers caused her great and constant pain. So this would have been... I mean, for lack of a better term, uh, sort of a mercy killing, putting her out of pain uh, so that she can come back fully powered and without pain. But Kurt didn't do that, and instead she had to be run down by a magnetic maniac who, I mean, this felt like... This felt like the Magneto of old, in a way, where he was getting his frustrations out, uh, his good guy frustrations, in a way that wouldn't get him sent to the hole, you know? This was part of the job, and it just seemed like part of the job he was enjoying just a little bit 
too much. Um, let's go back to Pixie here. We'll work our way through the story. And um, I know I dwelled on it perhaps a little bit too much during the synopsis, but the discontinuity between the Pixies, I feel that's very important. Um, and it was done, like I said, very, very subtly. And it wasn't like a huge, huge change in her life. It wasn't like she learned how to fly an airplane and now she doesn't know how to fly an airplane when she came back. This is, I like whatever the hell a cheese toasty is rather than sushi. And when she comes back, no, no, I still like sh- sushi because she hadn't developed the craving or hadn't just changed her mind yet in, uh, in the interim between her last Cerebro backup and her death. Which, at least to me, illustrates that that this isn't as seamless as I think we're supposed to... Which I think the Krakoans are supposed to just turn their brains off and see this as a seamless sort of thing. You die, you're back. No big deal. No worries. You're fine. And we've seen with Domino wanting to come back with all of her trauma and being brought back without her trauma. And uh, we thought about that and how... That was less an accident of Cerebro backup and more a, a deliberate decision by uh, whoever was in charge of her uh, resurrection. They didn't want her back with the trauma because she would be less useful with the trauma, right? So we think that there were, or at least I think, there was maybe maybe a ghost in the machine there, right? Someone who wears a great big Cerebro helmet on their head decides to maybe uh, maybe dial back the domino a little bit. Here, though, nobody's trying to take cheese toasties out of Pixie's mouth. This is just a reality of the resurrection protocol, where you're not getting the full person. It's, uh, it's interesting, and I love the fact that we actually see it here on the page. It was done very, very subtly. We're not beating over the head with it, despite the fact that I'm beating everyone over the head with it right now. Just beautifully done. Beautifully done issue. Um, I can't wait for more. I absolutely cannot wait for more. Um, I've heard conflicting reports that this is an ongoing aura miniseries. Though in fairness, it is Marvel, where I think it's safe to assume everything is a miniseries. But uh, I hope this uh, I hope this goes on for a long time, and I hope I hope we get more of uh, this real subtle shifting in observations, where Nightcrawler is. I mean, he's the Bob Newhart here, right? He's the only sane person in the room where everyone else is ready to party, ready to just have a good time, forget about all the bad, not even pay any mind to negative. And Nightcrawler's here being the uh, the stick in the mud here, the guilty Catholic who has to wonder and has to ask and has to uh, labor and uh, litigate these uh, these things that are going on before him. So... Wonderful issue, if I haven't made that clear. Uh, the art was also very, very, very good. Really good. Bob Quinn really nailed it here. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. This might get one of my highest recommendations since we started the show. So uh, if you haven't read Way of X, do yourself a favor. Check it out. If you have misgivings about the direction of the Hox, Pox, Dox, Rock, Sox era, in that, hey, these characters are acting weird, Way of X addresses that. And doesn't so much lampshade it, but tells us that, yes, you were right to notice this. You were right to be bothered by this. And uh, don't worry, because uh, we're going to address it in a way. So I don't know what way they're going to do it, but I'm excited to get there. So like I said, if you haven't read this, do yourself a favor. If you're waiting for Marvel Unlimited, you've got a treat coming. You've absolutely got a treat coming. If you can't wait for Marvel Unlimited, 
drop the five bucks. It's uh, definitely worth it. I don't think you'll regret it one bit. But that's all I got to say about this issue, though I spoke for about 40 minutes on it. Let's get into the mailbag here. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about... He's giving us a a one-two punch here. He's talking about X-Men 18 and 19. This is the uh, in and out of the vault issues here. Damien says, I'm going to comment on both 18 and 19 as one, because I read them in one sitting, and they really are a single story. I'll be honest, I walked away from these issues unsure of what to think. In many ways, there was very little story. Even though the issues encompassed hundreds of years, not all that much happened. In fact, I was looking forward to hearing how you responded, as I wasn't sure how I felt. And I think we're in uh, agreement here. Definitely, because, like you said, a lot of time passed hundreds of years, right? That was the the whole gimmick here, is that time is immeasurable in the vault here. Uh, Not even like a one-to-one or a one-to-five sort of comparison between uh, real time and uh, vault time. So, Lord only knows how long we were in there. But, as you say, I mean... We found out that, like, a list of things happened. And this was classic Hickman tell-don't-show. It was just like, oh, well, then then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Well, I don't really know what to think about that because we didn't get to live it, you know? And I think I mentioned this when we talked about these. It's like, you know, you could call me up on the phone and I can tell you about the worst day in my life, you know? This is what happened to me on my worst day. This is what happened to me on my best day. And you'll be there, and you'll be like, oh, that's too bad, or oh, that's great. Because you didn't live with the, the, the stories. You didn't live inside the stories. You're just hearing a recitation of events. That's what this co- these comics were. It was mostly info pages and graphs, and it was uh, very, 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 very sparse on actual story. Uh, Damien continues, Ultimately, it's very true that the X-Men have created their own villains this time around. The Children of the Vault will be a bigger threat because of who the Krakoans sent in to investigate them. That is definitely more interesting than the likes of horticulture. You are right that Hickman seems to spend most of his time on setup and very little following through. It's probably a good thing that it's Jerry Duggan who will be writing future stories with Sink and Laura, as we can trust him to bring the feelings rather than just assert a relationship. That's excellent. I love the way you, you, I love the way you worded that. Uh, There's something really creepy about the idea of a faded relationship, and you can be sure that Laura will rebel against any element of predestination, as that has been a cornerstone of her character since she took on the name Wolverine. Couldn't have said it better. Couldn't have said it better at all. Um, Starting with Hickman doing the setups here, I mean, he's a great idea guy. That's something I will give him. The idea of what we're dealing with here... I I hate using the word genius because I think that's one of those words that the internet has absolutely destroyed. But there is cleverness to the story we're being told. There is a measure of originality and novelty to it. So the ideas are good. The ideas are solid. It's just that the follow-through either doesn't happen or it takes so long to happen that by the time it does happen, we're kind of over it, right? I mean, this very vault story, it took over a year to get to the second part of it. It's like, I was kind of done with that. You could have just, I mean, like I said, Hickman does the tell-don't show. You could just, uh, you could just have Laura, Sink, and Darwin show up again and be like, oh yeah, we're done in there. (laughs) And that could have been, that could have been it. Now you mentioned that, um, Hickman asserts relationships here. It's basically, let's stand two people together and we'll tell people that there are feelings there from one to the other, from both to each other. Whichever the case, we're just told things. We're told that this is important. This is something you need to watch. 
But there's no heart there. You know, we don't have any reason to invest here. All we saw on panel between Sink and Laura was they, they were huddled up, uh, like in one single panel. It's like, okay, they persevered and they hugged. And it's like, well, that doesn't tell me that there was a relationship. It gets kind of clarified at the end there when uh, when Laura kind of like snicked in uh, Everett's direction. <laughs> but uh, it really just doesn't... Um, it's very empty. It's very, very empty. So yes, Jerry Duggan coming in with Laura and Everett on his team. I am... I have all the confidence in the world that he will make a deliberate effort to make this matter, to pick up the pieces of this, um, you know, predestined and asserted and very hollow relationship and make it something more. Uh, Damien continues, I find it unbelievable that you've had pushback from Hickman fans. If anything, I think you're often too generous to him. I know I can stomach a text page better than you. I imagine that's because I loved Five Years Later Legion, which was full of them. But I'm much more critical of Hickman than you. I think he is often given a pass because we know he has an elaborate plan, but ultimately you have to judge the comic in front of you, not some endless tapestry. Hickman's style is not an excuse to waste my money. And yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, not so much anymore. Because I'm pretty sure the people who would just come at me with Hickman style probably stopped listening ages ago. Because I'm trying to think if we've had very many positive um, positive Hickman issues. Uh, I can think of the solo with Mystique and the Crucible. And other than that, it was uh, a lot of setup, a lot of attempts at humor, and not much more than that. So... Uh, I'm pretty sure anybody who was of the Hickman-style uh, bent was, uh, has dropped this show long, long time ago. Which is a true shame, because I was hoping that we'd be getting feedback from people who thought differently about this, uh, about this run. You know, people who maybe can enlighten me as to why they liked certain things or why they didn't like certain things that I liked, and we have a conversation. I was hopeful for that, but um, uh, this is the internet. So if you disagree, you just plug your ears and be like, nope, 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 don't want to hear it. So I'm guessing they're probably long gone. That said, I totally agree with you that every issue, despite being part of, as you put it, as you perfectly put it, an endless tapestry. This story, we don't know if it's going to be three years, four years, five years, five years from now. We don't know how long this story is going to go. So I guess we can say it is um, indefinite, right? It's it's until it's done and not a moment sooner. But we have to be able to get something out of each issue. It doesn't have to add so much to that tapestry, but it has to be something that can be read satisfyingly, something that can be enjoyed or appreciated or just outright understood. And uh, you know me, I always I always rattle on about the money. I always rattle on about the cover price here, where, like, if it takes us four issues to get to, like, the meat and potatoes of a story, it's like, well, we're, like, $20 into this thing now, so too little too late. You know, that's kind of how I judge things, right or wrong, so your point is very well taken, and I agree 100% here. Hickman style might be, might be great, you know, it might be something that we'll look back on and be like, wow, that was great, everything made sense here. But this is a serially told story, and every every step of it should be enjoyable, understandable, and appreciatable, rather than just like, yeah, don't complain about that because it will make sense. Well, 
how, how about we have like nebulous things and things we can enjoy, right? I, I don't want to do, I, I don't want to take prereq classes to, to understand this thing, especially when they're four to five dollars a pop. Damien wraps up with, well, until Chris starts to produce diagrams instead of podcasts, make mine X laps. And, and diagrams look like they're fun to make, don't they? They look, uh, they look pretty fun. They look, uh, kind of easy. <laughs> if I were to ask my wife, that might be better, that might be time better spent, right? Just to spend a half hour on that a day and not worry about anything else. The wife might be, uh, completely on board with me shifting to diagrams. But, uh, thank you so much for writing in about that two-parter, Damon. I was really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on it because that's, like you said, it's one of those stories that uh, you don't really know how you receive it. You know, you don't know how you feel about it at a at a narrative level. At a meta level, we could be like, well, this was too expensive. This wasted too many pages. This didn't tell a story. But narratively speaking, it's like, well, what made sense? Did this make sense? Is there anything we can take with us here? So I was, uh, I was fairly confused myself. So uh, thank you so much for writing in. Now, our next email is... Relevant. It's relevant here. We're actually doing a, uh, I think the uh, the techno folks call this day and date, right? Uh, even though I, I hate that phrase. I think it's a very silly phrase. We're going to have a letter from Andrew Franklin talking about Way of X number one. How about that? I haven't read this letter yet because I didn't want anything spoiled for me. But uh, Andrew says the following. It seems like I've been waiting for this book to come out since I first jumped into this Krakoa era, and likely you feel the same. Finally, the big interesting questions are being looked at, and I think Nightcrawler is the perfect lens to look at them through. He's always been one of my favorite X-Men, even though in my formative X-Years he wasn't even on the team. I really enjoyed that this is, a, this is firmly a Nightcrawler book. I also appreciated that this issue is basically a comic that says to the reader, quote, I agree with you, some of this stuff is really messed up, unquote. Yes, yes, uh, we've been waiting for this since... Since at least, you know, House of X number five, right? Um, this is, this is like vindication here. Uh, they, they agree with us, you know? This is some messed up stuff. And hey, we get it. We get it. You guys have, you guys have dealt with it. You deserve some answers or at least some questions. And here we go, right? Um, and I, I'm in the same boat as you here. I've always thought Nightcrawler was a really cool character. When I started, he wasn't on the X-Men. He was an Excalibur, though uh, somewhat importantly, I would say, um, he was part of the first uh, line of Toy Biz X-Men action figures. So, and, and I think he was one of the first that I ever got. The first I did get was Storm, because um, Storm was a girl, and nobody wanted a girl action figure. I, I know that might sound insensitive or uh, close-minded, but um, I've to- I think I've told this story before where... I went to a place called Cheap John's uh, back in, uh, in Long Island. And this is like a closeout store, like a Big Lots or a, a f- maybe like a Five and Dime or something. Just like a, a last chance store where stuff that, like overstocks go there. And they're sold at a deep, deep discount. And I was also a paper boy. I've told that story before, I'm pretty sure. I was a paper boy for New York Newsday. And in putting together the Sunday uh, circular section, you know, and when you were a paper boy, you'd get a bundle of newspapers and you'd cut them open, you'd do the thing, you wrap them up, yada, yada, yada. On Sunday, though, you'd get like several bundles of papers that you have to basically assemble this. So the Sunday paper, of course, is big, has full-blown sections instead of just like subsections. So 
you have the the main news, you have the sports, you have the classifieds, you have the real estate, you have all that stuff. Then you have the ads. So you have like the supermarket ads, the uh, the the the, uh, the hardware store ads, all that kind of stuff. The TV guide is in there, and Cheap John's had one. And I remember looking at it as I'm putting together my paper bundles, and they had the X-Men figures there, and they were something like $2.50 each, which, I mean, is ridiculously cheap. I think at the time, if you were to go to, like, a Toys R Us, it would have been, like, a $5 per figure thing. If you bought them in a comic book store, it would have been, like, $12 a figure, because that's just how that works. But I saw a two fifty, and I was like, oh, God, I, well, I got to get in there, right? I go in there. And the entire wall, and, I, and I'm not even exaggerating when I say this, uh, it had to have been a hundred Storm action figures. And I remember being so disappointed that, uh, not, not that it was just Storm there, I was, I was happy to get the Storm action figure, of course, I wanted them all. But it was just like, there's no Wolverine, there's no Cyclops, there's no Colossus, not a, no bad guys there, so it's like I bought the Storm figure for $2.50, and... Uh, I would later uh, pick up a Nightcrawler as a, I don't remember which store I went to for that, but a Nightcrawler was a second action figure I got. So I've always held him in uh, somewhat special regard, probably just, uh, just from that. Uh, Andrew continues. It's odd because it feels like not much really happens in this issue, but at the same time we get a lot to chew on. This, this issue felt like a TV pilot that's given extra runtime to set everything up, and I was happy to see it was longer than a normal issue, because I really do like what it sets up. Nightcrawler is the perfect character to call out things like the Crucible and the blasé treatment of full-on shotgun blasts to the face. And he adds, I hope Nightcrawler hasn't reading, been reading X-Force. It's nice to see that he's been thinking about what all this immortality stuff means as much as we have, and I'm excited to read Kurt's personal journey through these moral questions, as I am to see how it'll affect the mutant society as a whole. Absolutely spot on there, Andrew. It's, uh, Nightcrawler is... I, don't, I can't think of a better character to be our point of view for this book here. I mean, we, we, I joke about Catholic guilt all the time, but, um, I mean, that's part of Nightcrawler's uh, gimmick, right? He's, he is the guy who kind of places a lot of responsibility on himself here. Um, and I don't know if he sees it as some sort of like a, a personal sort of thing to where, you know, I got to get to the bottom of this. I got to figure out what, what this is all about. Why have we changed this? Why don't we respect I mean, he's a, he's, a, he's a Catholic here. Why don't we respect this gift from God uh, that is life? All we do is play with it. We play with it, we squander it, we throw it away. We don't value it. It's, uh, I mean, there's no one better for this than Nightcrawler. And I mean, Nightcrawler is a character that I don't know anybody who doesn't like Nightcrawler. So having him be our eyes and our ears and our, uh, our boots on the ground on Krakoa here is just absolutely pitch perfect. Andrew continues, uh, Magneto, in a melodramatic speech channeling his Bronze Age mutant supremacist mode, lists all the great accomplishments they've made in the first post-mortal society. Then he goes on to murder someone for blood sport while a large mutant crowd cheers. Is this Avalon? Asteroid M? I'm happy that Kurt shares my thoughts that this whole situation is really effed up and needs to be changed. It seems too easy to blame all the rottenness on some outside influence, this patchwork man in the surprise last page reveal, but I really enjoyed this issue and the next one, so I have faith that this story will be satisfying. Well, you have me at a disadvantage there. I cannot wait to read the next issue here. This is one of those times where I've mentioned this before where it's like it's hard not to go on. 
it really is hard to play this uh, play this the way I, I wrote it out to be where I, I gotta <laughs> I gotta wait. But again, I, I totally agree with you. This is great Magneto here where as you put it, I mean he's in this full-on you know soliloquy about all of their achievements and all of uh, eschewing violence in a way where it's like I you know I, I wouldn't do these missiles anymore, crumple them up. And then we turn the page and he's killing someone for sport while being cheered on. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy. Um, Andrew wraps up with, I'm writing this a few days before the Way of X episode drops, and I'm eagerly awaiting to hear what you have to say about it, which I presumably have if I hear you reading this. I dare say that I think you'll have enjoyed it. So until then, which is now, but not yet for me, (laughs) make mine X last. Yeah, yeah, I like this one a little bit. <laughs> this was a, a hell of an issue, man. Uh, this was great, great stuff here. I really can't wait to get to the next one. I don't know, there was just, this such a satisfying issue. Um, and like I said, I have one complaint, and it's about the mushrooms on the head. I don't need to see that. But everything else, oh, I, I, I'm not big on the chef's kiss meme, but uh, if I were, I'd be giving one right now. But... Uh, that's where we're going to leave it for the mailbag here. If uh, anybody would like to write in and uh, and chat us up about any of these books, uh, Way of X, or if you disagree with anything I said, please, please consider reaching out. I think we can have some very fun conversations here. You can find me several different ways. On Twitter at Ace Comics, uh, Instagram at 90sXmen, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. You can chat us up on Facebook. The little group is 90s X-Men. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comic commentary listening needs, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available on every noise aggregator on this grand internet. And uh, while you're there, if you like what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it, I would love for you to share the show, spread the word, tell a friend or two, and ask them to tell a friend or two, and so on and so forth. It would really, really mean the world to me. Speaking of which, it means the world to me that you'd spend uh, this uh, extended period of time with me today while I blathered on about this wonderful, wonderful issue. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 202 of X-Lapsed, where uh, we're uh, coming down to the wire again, because this might just be the last episode for a little while, depending on whether or not uh, my DCBS order gets here uh, today <laughs> or uh, or tomorrow. I might be able to squeeze something in if it comes tomorrow. That's kind of the thing with the uh, DCBS shipments. You just never know what's going to happen here. I don't know if they ship them at a different like class or something, but uh, I've never had such uh, bipolar results uh, having something shipped to me as uh, through DCBS here. I think I've said this uh, the last time we were uh, coming up on a break. There are times where I'll literally get the uh, package two days after the books come out. So like they'll ship them on a Wednesday, I'll get them on a Friday. And then there are times where it'll take two weeks. And uh, this time out, it looked like everything was going to work out fine here. The original scheduled um, drop-off was uh, a few days ago. But uh, halfway through that day, it changed from, uh, you know, out for delivery to pending. So, I mean, your guess is as good as mine. So if, uh, if, the, if the books come, we'll cover them. If not, we'll pop into the uh, essentials uh, for a little while. But let's get into today's book here. This is Marauders number 20. It's had a July 2021 cover date. The story's called Wind Riders. Written by Jerry Duggan with art by Stefano Caselli. Colors Edgar Delgado and Chris Sotomayor. Letters VCs Corey Petit designs Tom Muller, head of Exus Hickman. Edits Bisa White Sabolski. Cover price $3.99. Went on sale May 5th of 2021. That was the day I got my, uh, my second uh, COVID shot. That was the day I became uh, inoculated. But uh, I still wear my mask out. I actually accidentally went into a store yesterday without the mask, and it felt so weird. <laughs> it really felt weird, and it was one of those situations where, like, I'm usually, at this point, one of the, like, 5% that actually still wears the mask in stores. And this time, when I forgot my mask in the car, I was, like, the only person there without one. So I felt like a a real weirdo. But, uh, yeah, let's get into the book here. Now we open with an info page, and uh, Emma Frost gives Kitty a brooch to wear at the Hellfire Gala, and uh, part of the makeup of this brooch is a bullet, because we must never, ever forget that the delicate genius Joss Whedon took 600 years to tell about three issues worth of story, which ended with Kitty Pride phased into a giant bullet. Double-page spread of roll call and cred. Our characters are Storm, Callisto, Iceman, Bishop, Call Me Kate, Pyro, Emma Frost, and Sebastian Shaw. We open on board the Mercury, where we'll be spending pretty much this entire issue. Now, it's taken the form of a traditional pirate ship right now, uh, and the water is quite choppy, uh, much to Emma Frost and her stomach's chagrin. Now, you know how we've been getting hints that Storm is leaving the team for, like, I don't know, ever at this point? It feels like ever since uh, X of Tens ended, it's all about, you know, Storm's leaving eventually. Maybe. I don't know. Well, this is finally her official farewell dinner. So this is going to be a celebration of Storm. Uh, stories are going to be shared. Things will be remembered. Though I hope nobody is looking for any actual deep cuts into Storm's greatest hits or relationships with some of these crewmates here, uh, they're gonna mostly stick to the post-Hoxpox era for all of their reminiscing. We do get one story from back in the long ago, but we'll get there when we get there. Now, it's worth noting, well, that's probably not worth noting, but uh, we only get two panels into the story before the Hellfire Gala gets a mention. So, uh... 
when the Hellfire Gala is going on, we all got to be talking about it. And when it's not, we all got to be asking about it. It's kind of what happens with the Hellfire Gala. Now, Pyro expresses surprise that Storm is the first one to ditch the Marauders. He had, uh, he had assumed it would be him. And it turns out he and Storm had something of an official wager on this uh, deal here. And so he hands over his marker. And she hopes she'll never have to call it in. And uh, we've heard a little bit about markers. I think uh, Cable has a Wolverine marker from that fight in the quarry. So uh, I don't know exactly. I'm guessing they're just for favors, you know. Pyro then pretends he's on an episode of The Golden Girls where they're all sitting around the kitchen table eating cheesecake in between flashbacks that uh, may or may not have actually happened. He shares a story about Storm being one of the hardest mutants he's ever rolled with. So picture it. A shipbreaking yard in India. Storm has found out that there's a young girl being explo- a young mutant girl being exploited there to tear down ships, and this is under the threat of having her family murdered. So you know, rocking a hard place. Storm, as you might imagine, is not okay with this. She questions a foreman who isn't all that forthcoming, and until Storm hurls a throwing knife through his clipboard. Now, the throwing knife thing will inform way too much of the rest of this issue, by the way. The foreman leads Storm to this young mutant, who they call Lash. Now, she has the ability to manifest, like, electrified whips or something. Kind of like Senyaka from the Acolytes, maybe? Or maybe not. It's, you know, more uh, energy-based. Doesn't look like there's any kind of physical uh, element to this. Now, Storm heads over to the girl, actually catches the electrified whip with her bare hands, and then tells Lash that she's now free. Also, that her family has been rescued. Pyro expresses a whole lot of awe that Storm was able to successfully complete this mission with only one throwing knife. Bishop happens to think it was a little bit more impressive that she grabbed Lash's lightning whip. Call Me Kate mentions that Storm likely had a lot of blades hidden on her that day. And Christian Frost suggests that uh, maybe they ought to bet on how many she's carrying right now. Pyro enforces the Price is Right rules, which is, you know, closest without going over, and then posits that Storm has three blades. And Storm laughs. Now, as Emma complains about the motion of the ocean, it's Bishop's turn to tell his Storm story. So, uh, picture it. Angola. Wait a sec, Storm interrupts. She's never been to Angola with Bishop. Well, that don't much matter. Bishop recounts a time where he used some pretty bad weather to his advantage by suggesting to some baddies that Storm was responsible for it. So, rather than deal with the weather goddess, the bad guys do everything Bishop demands, including giving back magic meds and releasing some mutant hostages. Bishop wraps up his time with the talking stick by guessing that Storm is carrying seven blades. It's Iceman's turn next, and, uh... He makes what has to be a meta-reference. Uh, he suggests that Storm is carrying X-blades. As in ten, you dig? I mean, we've we've talked about that before. Bobby's story takes place after the death of Call Me Kate. I believe that was Marauders number six or so. Now, he and Storm had paid a visit to the hate manga, and through force and violence convinced him to change his ways. I, I think that's what's going on here. Uh, that's what we see, anyway. Uh, the story that Bobby shares in the narration boxes sounds far more peaceful and diplomatic than all that. Next, Callisto lifts her glass and recalls Storm doing her the favor in the Crucible just a few issues back. And uh, she refuses to guess how many blades Storm is carrying, and then excuses herself to go to bed. Next, it's Emma's turn. Now, she shares a story about a time she'd swapped minds with Storm, and uh, this actually is kind of a deep cut from relatively early in Emma's, uh, you know, history with the, uh, in comics. Uh, she was probably only around a couple of years into the books at this point, 
and she recalls that Storm will always try to help you, no matter what. She then states that it doesn't matter how many knives Storm has, because it's clear she needs none of them. Then, it's off to bed for Emma, or at least that's what she tells the gang. It's Call Me Kate's turn, and, uh, yes, um, at this point in the reading, I was hoping against hope that this wasn't going to be yet another reference to Kitty being scared of Storm's mohawk. Thankfully, it was not. It's actually a callback to, uh, well, something even less impressive. Um, Marauders number one, where Kitty smashed her face on a Krakoan gateway trying to pass through. Storm popped Kitty's nose back into joint here. Uh, I'm not sure why that was her big Storm memory, considering how much history they share, but I guess at least it wasn't the haircut again. Um, Then, it's time for Storm to show off just how many knives she's carrying, and there are eight of them. And I guess Bishop wins the bet? Hooray for Bishop. Well, actually, it doesn't look like anybody wins, because the Marauders are all but certain that Storm hasn't shown them all of her blades. Now, let's head topside, where we see Lockheed steering the Mercury as Emma Frost arrives to get a bit of air. Sebastian Shaw is here, probably because no one wanted him at the dinner party, which kind of begs the question of, you know, why is he on board in the first place? Now, he and Emma talk about a woman who Shaw had lost. A woman by the name of Lourdes Chantel, um, who I actually had to do a little bit of web sleuthing on to recall. Uh, She was in a backup story that appeared in Classic X-Men number 7. Now, this is a story that took place at a Hellfire Gala of sorts, and I'm guessing that this will be the story we're getting a reprint of in the next issue of Marauders here. We talked about that during the solicits, how it's a uh, uh, five-buck issue, and it has a uh, blurb that refers to the current Hellfire Gala as the first ever, but then says there's going to be a flashback to the earlier Hellfire Gala. It was... I I guess it was kind of confusing. Um, Anyway, she was a mutant who died before Cerebro was there to get a backup, so she's evidently dead-dead. Considering that classic X-Men number 7 also reprints X-Men number 99, we might assume that anyone who died during the first 100 or so issues of X-Men, literally or retconned to be, um, we gotta assume that they can't be resurrected, right? Um, That doesn't explain the uh, the Deadly Genesis girls who died on Krakoa, but I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Emma seems oddly sympathetic to Shaw here. It's uh, very strange considering they're, you know, well, they have a weird recent history, but they also have a weird, you know, long-term history here. So I guess feelings might get a little bit uh, iffy between them here. They do have a history. Now we wrap up with the Mercury sailing towards the Sentinel-headed Faroe Island, so... I take that to mean the gala is happening there and not on Krakoa? Um, another thing about the solicits, they've been very confusing here. Some of them say it's Krakoa. Actually, I think they've all said it's Krakoa. I don't know that any of them have actually name-dropped the uh, Mykonos or Mykonos uh, in the Faroe Islands, but that's where we leave the story. We are on the precipice of the Hellfire Gala, at least in this book anyway. Uh, We do get an info page to close us out, and this introduces the concept of the Children of the Marauders. And this is basically encapsulates everyone rescued by the Marauders. And uh, I hope that in the next couple of weeks we don't get uh, an announcement that there will be a Children of the Marauders uh, miniseries. Because, frankly, it wouldn't surprise me, but I really don't want to see it. But that's where we leave it. 
Uh, next episode should be the Curse of the Man Thing story, uh, where Magic puts together her uh, Doc Riders or whoever. Uh, I'm not sure I'm necessarily looking forward to it, but uh, as always, we will endeavor to do our very best. But for now, let's talk about. Um, I don't want to say this is a disappointing issue, um, because it was it was a decent issue. Um, definitely felt. Uh, you know, Reggie and I would talk a lot about um, how creators want to skip ahead of all the foundational work, you know. And uh, I remember we were doing the Young Animal things, and I'm, you know, dropping the Young Animal thing here again. Those books ran for less than a year. Then they went into this big crossover event called The Milk Wars, and then they rebooted. And the rebooting had to do with, like, remaking the world in a way, and... Uh, one of our, uh, you know, most prolific complaints or observations about that was like, this wasn't earned. You know, this was not earned. <laughs> this doesn't have the gravity that I think DC would like us to think that it does. So here we have this issue of Marauders here, which is basically celebrating Storm's time as a Marauder. And le- I mean, let's let's do some real talk here. Does anybody remember Storm doing anything uh, during her time with the Marauders? Um, I feel like one of the common complaints we've had about this book is the fact that Storm is technically a part of the cast and doesn't do anything. I mean, we've been complaining about uh, Storm's treatment in the uh, in the X books since we left Hoxpox, right? She's such a prominent uh, member of the of of the X family here, and has been a background character for the most part. Uh, of course, we did have the giant size thing with uh, you know the Children of the Vault. You know, giving her that virus, but really, what else has she done? She did that thing with the Shi'ar, where she got a marker from uh, from Xandra, but what else? This just feels to me like the book is going out of its way to be like, Hey, hey, Storm was a part of this cast. Hey, we're gonna miss her. Storm is a part of this cast. But we have two years of this book that tells a different tale, or just doesn't tell a tale at all. It feels unearned. It feels like we any melancholy sort of feelings we get from this were artificial, manufactured. We're not reflecting back on things that have actually happened. We're not brushing up against anything that actually happened. These are all implanted uh, bits of importance, which I know one of the common things we say about this uh, this era is, you know, show, don't tell. And while this did show... It was mostly a telling, right? I mean, we're not going back and remembering the good times. This is just like, hey, these were the good times. Pay attention so you can miss Storm when she's gone. So yeah, not uh, not my favorite issue of Marauders, that's for sure here. And of course we have the, uh, you know, the pall of the Hellfire Gala looming <laughs> ever so prominently here, which... Again, I'm, I'm just kind of burnt out on already. It feels like the more they try to convince us that it's a big deal, the more I question whether or not it is. And, I mean, that's probably a Chris problem, but, you know, it's uh, if you've ever worked for someone who has to remind you, like, every five minutes that they're the boss, then are they really? You know? If you gotta, like, keep projecting and presenting things in a certain way, it, it kind of tells the tale that it's maybe not quite as uh, important as we're trying to make it seem here. I don't know. This is, again, this is just Chris stuff. I'm probably projecting. It's just, uh, it's kind of grating is all. Uh, I feel like these little, this brief run we've had between uh, the Exoswords and Hellfire Gala 
was definitely not the sweet spot of what a story to to like let a, a, a whole arc kind of breathe. I don't know. I mean, we're gonna have plenty of time to talk about the Hellfire Gala, so I will do my best not to harp on it uh, for the next uh, handful of episodes that we do that aren't Hellfire Gala related. So what else we got here? What else do we got here? Um, not much. Really not much. Uh, the guessing how many knives Storm has thing, I, I, I guess if you have to wrap an issue around a you know a thread there, I guess it's okay. Um, I feel like they kind of leaned into it a bit too far, and it kind of overstayed its welcome a little bit. I mean, rather than spend probably a combined three or four pages, you know, uh, joshing around about the knives here, why not have Storm tell a story, you know, about what being a marauder meant to her? Because I don't know that we know. <laughs> like, what we know about Storm's time as a marauder is that it started with her saying she didn't want to answer to Emma Frost. And now they're friends. And it's, I don't know, it just all feels very artificial. So it's hard for me to really see this as anything as poignant as I think it's supposed to be. I will admit that I'm a bit interested on Shaw's uh, missing lady, uh, Lourdes Chantel. Uh, I've got to dig out that issue of... Uh, actually, I don't have to dig out that issue of Classic X-Men because we're going to be getting that reprinted in the next issue of Marauders anyway. So uh, we'll all have it at hand. And uh, yeah, we will cover that here on the show as well to uh, fill in any blanks and to make any sort of observations that might uh, inform what happens during the gala. Because I'm guessing that... I'm guessing they didn't drop her name for no reason. So she might be back uh, somehow. Um, they, I mean, they went out of their way to mention that she had perished before Cerebro started doing backups, which feels like an overcomplication of the situation, especially if, I mean, I'm like 80% sure she's going to be back. So how do you write yourself out of that? Um, it could have just been like, hey, her uh, data was corrupted or, or whatever, because now we're starting to question other things here, like... Petra and Sway dying on Krakoa They're back now, right? I mean, they, they're back They were resurrected uh, Cerebro wasn't backing things up at giant size, right? I don't know Maybe these are just questions that uh, we're not supposed to be asking, right? <laughs> because uh, nobody's supposed to care quite this much about uh, timelines in comics But it's kind of what we do here So, uh, what is that? What do the kids say? Sorry, not sorry? Is that what the kids say? So, yeah, one of those, I guess uh, the art continues to be very, very strong on this book. It's uh, it's it's wonderful to look at here. Um, worth noting, the cover is very, very nice as well. Here, it's uh, you got Storm looking on the horizon here, and you have a picture of a uh, you know Kitty in her Shadow Cat uniform, Mo- uh, Mohawked Storm, and Nightcrawler over the horizon. Just uh, really shows us that Storm is uh, you know, reminiscing, thinking about the past. Uh, I was hoping that Nightcrawler was going to be here. I think that that could have been a nice little scene here, especially considering how he has like a standing offer to head out on, you know, with the Marauders. Uh, him and Kitty were talking about having a little team up somewhere down the line. This would have been a nice spot for that. Oh, well, I think that's all I've got to say about this issue here. But before we go, we do have a couple of pieces of mail to get to. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about Excalibur number 18. He says, I'm finding it harder and harder to read Excalibur. Preach on. Uh, The continual refusal to start a story at the beginning is starting to get really tiresome. I find it really astonishing that Marcus Toe was able to produce such beautiful artwork from such a weak storyline. Everything seems to come out of nowhere. Have we ever really seen Richter becoming interested in magic? I know it's run throughout the series, but it doesn't feel organic. 
I'm impressed that you remembered that weirdo Jamie Braddock was holding Morgan Le Fay captive. I was just wondering why he had Celine. And yeah, um, <laughs> it, it they do look uh, uh, you know astonishingly similar here. Um, yeah, Excalibur's a toughie. Uh, it's never been an easy read, but of late, I, I don't know if it's just the whole familiarity breeding contempt sort of thing, or maybe. Maybe I'm holding a grudge against it because we're losing books like Cable and X-Factor, but somehow we're still getting Excalibur, and there's still going to be another world. Uh, it's just not a book I look forward to. And when I see it on the horizon, uh, you know, coming up for an episode, it's... It, I don't want to say I get a pit in my stomach. It's not quite that bad. But um, I would much rather be talking about just about every any other book that we cover on this show. Uh, minus X-Corp, which... We will be doing shortly after my shipment arrives, for better or for worse. But yeah, I mean, we could take everything I just said about uh, this issue of Marauders feeling unearned, and we could pretty much lay that at the at the foot of pretty much every issue of Excalibur. Um, we're expected to take these big changes in character here, like like you mentioned, Richter being a druid who is just uh, wild about magic. Uh, not the character, of course, the uh, the concept, <laughs> mysticism, you know. It, it just feels inorganic. It feels like something that uh, they wanted to happen in the book, and rather than actually putting the work into having him express interest, it's just like he goes from zero to 60. It's like, here's this mutant kid, and suddenly here's this magician. I don't know. Uh, Damien continues, and next it's Quanon versus Betsy yet again. It doesn't matter how well Rogue is written, and she is, it can't make up for all the tosh. Yeah, and I believe you're going to be heading into the uh, the Jackdaw issue here, which popped me as a fairly uh, deep-cut reference until you realized that all it was was uh, wallpaper, right? Uh, it didn't matter that the Jackdaws were there. It was just a, hey, reference, you know? Um, doesn't matter where they are. They could have been in a parking lot. They could have been in a hole in the ground. They could have been fighting on the astral plane. It really didn't matter. You know, it's just this is the uh, this is the screen you picked on your you know Street Fighter Two um, level selector. <laughs> it's like Jackdaw Village. There you go. Uh, Damien wraps up with until Marvel discovers that previous Excaliburs featured stories that weren't set in Otherworld. Make my next lapsed. Well, if I were a betting man, and as you all know, I am not. Uh, I'm not sure I would bet a single dime on whether or not anybody at Marvel has read any. Of the old Excalibur stuff I, Something tells me that uh, That they haven't So they might think it's all otherworld and, uh, and crazy magic stuff But there was a whole lot more to it than that But uh, thank you so much For writing in Damien Next up we got Evan talking about New Mutants number 16 And it's another otherworld issue <laughs> Now uh, Evan says I'm not saying you should like the otherworld excursion But I didn't mind it for better or for worse, it's part of the new X landscape, and it made sense for the kids to go there on a dare, and for Danny and Karma to try to keep clean up the mess. It makes more sense to me than Excalibur going there constantly because, hey. And you're right. You're right. I think a lot of my knee-jerk reaction to the otherworldliness of New Mutants was more informed by the fact that uh, I'm tired of it. You know, um, had we not done Otherworld every single month for the past 20 months in Excalibur, this might have been a little bit, uh, received a little bit differently by me here. I, I wouldn't have had the Otherworld fatigue that I do. It's like that old saying, like, how can I miss you if you never leave? Now, that's not to say that I'll ever, like, be 
chomping at the bit for another world story, but, I mean, maybe if it wasn't every single month. A little excursion like this that lets uh, Rod Reese just flex his muscles playing with this weird otherworldly landscape and just having a blast with the art, I think it would have been better, you know? I think it would have been received better by me and perhaps from other people as well. It's just too much. Way, way, way too much. Evan continues... As for Warpath being relegated to an info page, well, at least he wasn't left out entirely. Your point is well taken. Um, I just I just don't like those info pages. Uh, I mean, I don't like info pages in general, but these writing prompts one for uh, Warpath are... Uh, they're rough. <laughs> they're not great. He answers things like way too literally. It's... I don't know what it's, what it's adding. You know, uh, I don't know that we're going to get a huge Warpath story that's going to be like, hey, you remember that writing prompt he had in issue 15? I just don't know. Evan continues, I get where you're coming from with the mention of the X-Men, but without going back to that info page in the latter part of the Festival of Swords, which is now on autocomplete on my phone, I love it. I believe it said people had started using X-Men and mutants almost interchangeably. Maybe. Perhaps for the youngsters who may not understand the reasoning for not having an official X-Men team, they just keep using the team. Maybe the compromise could have been Danny going, hey, there are no X-Men these days, remember? But I don't think it was necessarily a major inconsistency. And you're right. You're right. I just feel like um, the fact that they drew such a firm line under it in during the Festival of Swords... I expect consistency from the editors. Not so much the characters in the book. I mean, the characters in the book can only do what they do. But, like, editorial should be... Because, I mean, we have this new volume of X-Men coming out that's supposed to be this huge deal because we've never had X-Men before, and that's the whole point, is now we have an X-Men team. But they're being called X-Men all the time. They're all wearing X-belts. They're all wearing X-Men attire. Everybody calls them the X-Men. And what makes the new volume special then? Are the X-Men going to be like, hey, we're the X-Men? They'll be like, well, yeah, you were here yesterday, too. It's like, no, 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 we haven't been here in years. Like, no, no, I saw you the other day. You're wearing an X-Belt. You're fighting bad guys. I, we, you're X-Men. I feel like it should have been more, uh, you know, more in or out, right? It's another case of how can we miss you if you never leave, right? <laughs> Just going back to the other thing there. If nobody realized the X-Men weren't a thing then they can't miss the fact that the X-Men were a thing, and they can't appreciate the X-Men when they come back. I don't know, I feel like there are just other ways they could have done all this. They could have made the, their point and, uh, and kept it to where it's going to be important that the X-Men are back. It's going to be a seminal event, right, where things are going to change. We have this new team. We haven't had a team for a while. Let's you know hit the ground running, and we can appreciate what we have now. We have people who literally go by the name X-Men instead of Krakoan or Mutant, Mutant, Mutant. But thank you so, so much for writing in, Evan. I really, really appreciate it. Now, if anyone out there would like to write in, I would uh, hope you do so. Uh, you can find me several different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, Instagram at 90s X-Men. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline thing at uh, 623 396 Jerk. Now, as for the social media stuff, um, I'm not quite as active on there. So if you'd like to get a hold of me, please tag me or send me a direct message. Either way, I'll find you. I'm just trying to stay off the front page right now because as we're becoming more and more X-relevant here on the show, um, I'm running into spoilers. A lot of spoilers. 
uh, people are, they can't wait <laughs> to spoil this stuff. And um, before, when I was really far behind, uh, you know, things would happen and I wouldn't really know the context for them. But here, I mean, we are basically no longer ex-lapsed, right? We're caught up. Uh, if I was getting my books every week at the shop, we would be caught up every single week, you know? Um, so it's harder for me to avoid spoilers now, especially we have a big event going with the Hellfire Gala. Every time I open up a social media app, I'm seeing full-page spoilers from uh, from the gala, and I really just don't want to ruin it. You know, I've mentioned it before. I come from uh, the, you know, the old internet. Not like Web 1.0, but like Web 0.5, when we were on the Usenet BBS boards and stuff. And yes, I, I just, you know, mentioned Usenet again, so uh, you can all gather around uh, the old man's uh, rocking chair as I regale you with stories of the ancient prehistoric internet. But uh, back then, um, it felt like uh, there was this unspoken rule where you didn't spoil things, you know? Uh, it was never a rule in the, in the groups. It was just something that people did out of courtesy, you know? Um, a, lot of the, a lot of the Usenetters and the BBSers were uh, academics, you know? A lot of their emails ended in EDU, and a lot of their, a lot of their you know, ta- trackbacks went to uh, a university, Right? So I think it was understood that not all of the people involved in the conversation were going to be able to get the books, like, the day they come out. So every post there was kind of marked um, safe or not safe, right? It's either we're going to talk in depth with spoilers, so if you've read them, pop on in, you're fine. If you haven't read them and you don't want to be spoiled, then maybe don't read this one just yet. It was always very, very clear and explicit that you're not going to be spoiled on Usenet. That, unfortunately, isn't a thing anymore. Uh, we don't get little spoiler tags. Or, or we'll get a spoilery picture on, you know, on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. And then, like, the first line of the, of the text will say, spoiler alert. And it's like, well, yeah, no kidding. I just saw the picture. I, I, you spoiled me already. I just don't understand what the rush is to break news on social media now. Um, I would never consider myself, you know, an X-Men news source. Though I do know that there are a few people who listen to the show who consider it that um, because they've told me so. But I would never consider myself to be like an official news source or someone who's going to break news, right? And despite the fact that, you know, I do put out, you know, very regular X-Men related content here, at the end of the day, I'm just a fan. You know, I'm just a fan. I'm just a reader. I'm just a, uh, a consumer of these X-Men books here. And I would like to... I would like to receive them the same way everyone else does. You know, I'd like to be surprised by things. I don't want to find out what Magneto does at the Hellfire Gala, so I know I can't be on social media, you know? I don't want to know who shows up at the gala, just even the most benign guests. I don't want to know any of that. I want that to be something that I open the book and be like, ah, there's Captain America, or ah, there's whoever. That's kind of how I want to play it. So... All that to say, if you would like to get a hold of me on social media, tag me or send me a direct message. And uh, I'm usually quite receptive and sociable that way. Um, now, where were we? Uh, for blog posts and show notes, you can head to Chris's on InfiniteEarth.com. You can chat us up on Facebook. That's 90s X-Men on Facebook. And uh, we're keeping that spoiler-free as well. So, And we're actually keeping that like double spoiler-free because a lot of our friends over there are on Marvel Unlimited. So they're waiting a few months before getting to some of these books as well. So we do our best to make sure we're not spoiling their reading experience there. So that, again, is 90s X-Men on Facebook. 
And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comic commentary listening needs, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available everywhere the internet aggregates noise and sound. And while you're there, if you enjoy what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort behind it, I would love for you to spread the word, share the show, tell a friend or two, all that happy stuff. It would really, really mean a lot to me, and it would really, really help the show. But that's where we're going to leave it for today. I'd like to thank you all so, so much for sharing some of your time with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Chris, welcome to episode 205 of X-Labs, where, um, I guess a little real talk to start things out here, uh, this is going to be a uh, mostly negative episode. I figure I should get that out up front. Uh, if you don't want to hear me ranting about how much I dislike a book, uh, this is probably your uh, best chance to uh, nope out. I won't take it personally. Um, the last thing I ever wanted to become when I started doing anything online, really, uh, blogging, podcasting, in any, you know, shape, form, or fashion. I didn't want to be one of those angry reviewers, right? We're all familiar with the angry reviewer waves on on YouTube and stuff where people basically just curse at things they don't like, and uh, people seem to like it. That's never what I wanted to become here. Um, If anything, I've kind of gone the other direction where I'm usually called out for being uh, too uh, lenient, on things here, uh, and I guess at worst, uh, riding the fence as to not offend anybody. But here, um, well, this is a this is a truly awful book that we're about to discuss here. Um, and of course, opinions are uh, are different. Of course, if you have any different thoughts on this issue, I would love to hear them. But I figured I should start with a little. Uh, you know, public service announcement to give you guys the opportunity to hit the stop button and hit the delete button and, you know, maybe come back another day. Let's get into it. X-Corp number one, July 2021 cover date. The story is called Simply Superior. 
which, I mean, that's kind of funny. Uh, written by Teeny Howard with art by Alberto Focci. Colors, Sonny Go. Letters, VCs, Clayton Cowles. Designs, Tom Muller. Head of X is Hickman. Edits, Amaro, White, Sobolski. Cover price, five friggin' dollars. And this one went on sale May 12 of 2021. So let's start by answering a question. Just, uh, what in the hell is X-Corp? Well, it seems like it's one of the very few elements of the Grant Morrison run that our CCO is uh, going to let the X-Men Brain Trust play with. So uh, basically, we have X-Corp and Jumbo Carnation, then. Okay. Anyway, back in the Grant Morrison days, the X-Corporation wasn't so much a for-profit outfit like it's going to appear to be here. They were more about helping to work toward equal rights for mutants, which... um, You know, I gotta say, it was much more interesting that way. Now, it feels like we're gonna be getting something kinda like Joe Casey's Wildcats 3.0, which was also far more interesting than anything we're about to read. So, let's get into it. We open at X-Corp Island, I guess. Um, It's an entire island devoted to this really boring idea. If you've ever played Final Fantasy VIII... And remember the gardens where the uh, seeds, you know, your characters trained? It's kind of like that. And later we're going to find out it's almost exactly like that. Um, Monet and Warren are shooting an advertisement for X-Corp here, though I couldn't begin to tell you who they're trying to advertise to. You know, I thought the mutant magic meds were Krakoa's only export, and that was all being handled, like, diplomatically or via, you know, the Hellfire trading crew rather than corporately. Maybe I'm thinking too hard? I don't know. Now, this ad shows Forge and Sunspot doing some vague things. A bunch of Madroxes in a lab. And Bishop being fitted for an outfit by Jumbo Friggin' Carnation because we must never, ever forget about Jumbo and the Hellfire Gala, right? We gotta be reminded. Now, it ends with Warren welcoming whoever is watching this to X-Corp. And Monet drops the line, We're simply superior. Superior to what? Your guess is as good as mine. Double-page spread of roll call and cred. Our characters include Penance. I hate calling Monet Penance, but that's what they're calling her. Angel, Trinary, Trinary, however we're going to say that. She's going to become our Dak and Dakin, I think. And the multiple man, Madrox. Back to comics, and the advertisement wraps up. Now, it looks like it's being shot by Wind Dancer, who we recently saw blow her own brains out in Adam X's uh, Mojoverse show. She tells Monet that the Simply Superior line hasn't been approved as a slogan yet. She doesn't tell her that it's just plain stupid, though. Now, the gimmick here, as far as I can guess, is that uh, Warren and Monet are two very different types of... uh, CXO. Now, Warren is more even-keeled and mature. Monet is a hothead who views herself as being more important than everyone around her. And I'll give them this much, that's actually in line with their established personalities. Now, it doesn't quite tell us why Monet is in such a high-ranking position here, other than, hey, remember that X-Corp cameo from the Empire miniseries? Monet was in that, right? Hmm? Uh, We're told here that she's really good at boardroom stuff, despite the fact that I don't think we've ever seen her in one before. Anyway, Monet is far too busy to stick around and reshoot the ad, and has a condescending chat with Warren as they walk through a gateway to meet with Professor X. So, let's head to the Quiet Council chamber. Uh, Professor X is here all by his lonesome. It's not an official Quiet Council meeting. It's just a little uh, meet-and-greet, a little get-together. And so we get a couple of pages, uh, a couple more pages here, to drive the point home that Warren and Monet are two very different types of... (sighs) CXO. Now, Xavier gives them the okay to start recruiting for an X-Corp expanded board of directors. 
So, how's about we spend a bunch of pages gathering a team, then? We jump to Monet as Penance, which is something I still don't entirely understand. Uh, I mean, didn't we see Monet with two little Penance girls in an early issue of New Mutants? I don't know. Maybe I, maybe it happened during my hiatus. Whatever. Anyway, Monet is in Tardeo, Mumbai, India, where she's fighting some bad guys who have descended on Trinary, Trinary. Now, Trinary, Trinary, is from X-Men Red, but we did see her chatting up ayy, back in Excalibur number one. That was like, I think that was her only appearance in the post-Hox-Pox era to this point. Now, she's a mutant hacker of sorts and can communicate with technology. Here, she's being attacked by the Indian Mutant Defense Force, the IMDF, who had the unmitigated nerve to try and nab her for hacking into some large bank accounts. I mean, that's kind of breaking the law, right? I mean, Trinary, Trinary, is in the wrong here, yes? Hmm? She attempts to explain to Monet, but Monet says she already knows everything because she read her mind. I don't remember that being one of Monet's powers, but I guess we'll allow it. Do we have an actual list of Monet's powers? It seems like she's just the deus ex machina character, right? Whatever power's needed is the one she's got. Like, maybe she should be a member of the Brotherhood of Dada or something over in the uh, Morrison Doom Patrol. I don't know. We do find out here that Monet can only use telepathy when she's not in her penance form. Very important, only it's not. Put a pin in that for now. Anyway, Monet offers Trinary Trinary a position on the board. Trinary Trinary decides to start right away and begins communicating with the X-Corp HQ. Now, she immediately finds and, res- and resolves 417 instances of vicious malware. I hear you asking, what's all Warren Worthington up to? Oh, let's shift scenes to a less abrasive character and check out what he's up to. He's in Angra dos Reis, Brazil? Okay. Now, he's here to chat up Jean-Pierre Cole, who we last saw in House of X number 1. He was one of those ambassadors on the Magneto Magic Mystery Tour in Jerusalem. He's not only an ambassador, though, he's a businessman, so, ooh, the intrigue. Uh, Looks like his gimmick had something to do with breeding weird mutant horses for racing, and so we see a stable full of rather strange horses. Uh, Some have wings, one's on fire. (laughs) I guess it's something, I guess. Now, this Cole tries to give us a weird analogy here. He compares horse racing to mutant superiority or something. It's really very poorly done and doesn't have, like, one-tenth the impact I think it's supposed to. He then reveals that he's suing Krakoa after selling his company to Xavier? For reasons? Let's hop into an info page, because Lord knows we need one. This is more about that lawsuit or just bringing charges on Krakoa. Now, this posits that the existence of the Savage Land Krakoan processing plant is breaking international law. Now, it's agricultural and financial exploitation of an international wildlife preserve, which I didn't realize that the Savage Land had any such status. But in fairness, since it is the Savage Land, I also didn't care. Next stop, hey, would you look at that? It's the Savage Land Flower Processing Facility, where we see dozens of Jamie Madrox dupes dutifully working. Monet enters the lab and is shooed away by a doctor, Jamie Madrox. And so she punches him in the gut. Um, so, okay, we're, we're not supposed to be rooting for Monet, right? Like, this isn't a, ooh, Monet's a badass, right? This is more of a, oof, Monet's an asshole, right? I mean, it is Teeny Howard writing, so I, I think it's not, not unfair of me to need clarification. Anyway, 
Real Jamie shows up, and Monet goes to recruit him to the X-Corp board. He's not immediately on board with the board, especially after she suggests that his dupes are disposables. He rightly takes offense to this, and uh, more on that in a bit. But he agrees to go with her anyway, so long as he can leave a bunch of his dupes dutifully working at the plant. Now, we learn here that working with the magic meds has been the most fulfilling thing he's ever done in his entire life. So, I guess X-Factor Investigations is nothing. Where's Layla Miller? Are they still married? I don't know. Maybe, was she a figment of his imagination? I don't know. So, yes, working with the plants is his uh, passion. And, uh, hey, you know, it's uh, I can't really fight that, so let's go with it. We jump back to X-Corp HQ, where Monet is telepathically talking to Warren learning about this weird lawsuit or international charges or whatever it is, Warren thinks that Cole is planning to attack the Savage Land facility. Which, I mean, if that's the case, what's the point of bringing them up on charges then? I don't know. Uh, We also find out here that Warren meeting Cole in Brazil was planned, because, you see, Brazil does not have a treaty with Krakoa and therefore doesn't have any gateways. Even when Warren arrives here, he's warned not to drop any of those seeds because uh, they didn't want any gateways there. That said, Warren is basically stuck there, right? And he also won't have any quick-to-arrive backup, you know, excluding speedsters, I guess. Uh, Monet suggests (laughs) that Warren just kill Cole. Kill him and hide him, she says. The hell? Is is this X-Force? Okay. Now, Warren would just rather, like, pay the guy off or come to some sort of workable terms. Uh, I mean, money literally grows on trees in Krakoa. They are they are trying to be a nation, right? Diplomacy is important if you're trying to establish yourself on the global at the global table, right? <sighs> anyway, he then goes back into his meeting with Cole here, and he pushes a button on the top of his phone, and we'll get more into that in a bit. Monet, who is now in her penance form, continues telepathying. I thought she couldn't... Editors? Anybody? Anybody reading this? Um, She then flips the F out, realizing that they uh, gotta get to the Savage Land with the quickness here because there's going to be an attack. And so she orders the HQ to rise out of the drink. And so it goes full-on Final Fantasy VIII Garden. It's like a hovering mobile base at this point. Then, some four or so pages later, Monet realizes that a light is blinking on her console. I'm guessing this has to do with that button that Warren pushed on his phone, so it looks like he is in trouble here. Maybe this is a distress signal. And Monet decides to make a executive decision. You get it? Because this is a corporate book, y'all. Jesus. Uh, instead of heading to the Savage Land, they're going to head to Brazil to rescue their boy. Madrox is not happy with this, considering that, you know, there are many dozens of him at that facility that's about to be attacked and very likely destroyed. Monet promises to replace anything that needs replacing, which is a real dick thing to say. Back to Warren, who is uh, watching a mutant horse race with Cole. Um, Warren agrees that the mutants will pull out of the Savage Land. But suddenly, that's not good enough. Now Cole, like, wants Warren dead, I think? He says, like, his blood is something and whatever. Then, the Savage Land facility is blowed up real good, killing all the Madroxes and destroying a whole bunch of recent research. Then, the Hovering HQ arrives via the super-secret Krakoan Gateway in Nova Roma, which we saw back in that fairly boring two-parter in uh, New Mutants that I'm not sure has ever been followed up on. Not that I'm asking for it to be. Now, at this point, Jamie sees video of his lab being destroyed, 
Monet is a, well, she's kind of a dick here. Uh, she says she'll just buy him another, not realizing that a whole bunch of dupes died and that it had been a week since he'd reabsorbed them, so all of their research is now gone forever. Monet, who is still a dick, says, eh, you never know what you're missing then, you know? You don't have the information, so whatever. So again, I mean, is this supposed to be like, uh, like, Monet's like a, you know, badass, you go girl sort of stuff? Yes, queen, is that what the kids say? Is, that, is this what we're trying to get out of this, or are we just supposed to look at her as a very, very unpleasant person? Again, I mean, who could say? Then, helicopters attack the HQ. And, you know, rightfully so, yes? Mutants aren't supposed to be hovering in this airspace. I mean, we know Brazil ain't friendly skies, so it stands to reason that they might find this to be an act of aggression, like a giant tower or a giant facility just floating over over their land. Now, Cole figures he could just order it shot out of the sky, and if he does so, he'll be viewed as a hero. And, uh, I mean, he's got a point. He's not wrong, right? Warren then flies up to the base while helicopters fire lasers at him as though he's in an episode of the old G.I. Joe cartoon. As he approaches, Penance swipes at him, I think? I I haven't the foggiest idea. The art here is, um... I mean, the art's not bad. It's just the storytelling is, is a little weird. He then lands and is welcomed to the HQ by the no longer penanced Monet. They wish each other a happy Friday, because I think that's what people do when they work in an office, right? Hey, it's Friday. How about that? Uh, Now, she refers to this entire mess as the, quote, perfect launch for X-Corp. You kidding me? Uh, Also, Madrox has gotten over the deaths of all of his dupes and dreams pretty quickly. From here, we go to the wrap-up, and it's an info page. Of course, uh, a newspaper clipping about the X-Corp debut. Monet is happy that the stupid flying island was big enough news to bury all of the Savage Land stuff. Which, isn't this like the friggin' Marvel Universe? Aren't there flying islands and helicarriers like all over the place? You figure this would just be another day in in the neighborhood here. But that is thankfully where we leave it. Next episode, it's a TGIXF. Thank God, it's X-Factor. It's uh, too bad we're headed back to Mojo World, but uh, there's no doubt that it'll be a step up from the last three books that we've covered on this program. Now, as we enter our little talking time segment here, as I, as I note it in my, uh, in my Google Doc, uh, these little segments are talking time. It's uh, out of... Uh, the hell was that clash of demon head whenever you're having a conversation with someone back in that nintendo game would say talking time so that's kind of what i write on my script as a uh, as a break from the synopsis into the whatever this part is it's not exactly a review it's kind of a discussion you know it is what it is before we get into that because i really i don't have much to say about this issue that i haven't already said but i do want to start by first apologizing to the listeners for having to deal with me being quite so cranky. I don't think that's what people sign on for. Uh, So I do apologize. Um, I also have other things I need to apologize to. Fallen Angels. I'm sorry. Empire X-Men. I'm sorry. That stupid King Egg story with Brew. I'm sorry. That X-Factor issue that I hated back, uh, was it X-Factor number two in Mojo World? I'm sorry. Curse of the Man-Thing. I'm sorry. 
I hope we've hit the bottom here. Uh, this was uh, probably my least favorite book that we've covered um, in 205 episodes of this program. I didn't expect it to be good, right? I mean, I've been saying that ever since the announcement happened. It's like, this does not seem like an interesting concept. Um, everything we've seen from, uh, from this writer over in Excalibur hasn't been that great. So I didn't have high hopes for it. So I didn't expect it to be good. But I also didn't expect it to be this bad. This is awful. I mean, let me tell you a little bit about my process here. Okay, so I'll generally read uh, the book that I'm going to cover for X Lapsed two nights before I do the uh, the episode, two nights before I record. So last night, you know, as I record this, it is Tuesday, June the 15th. So last night, June the 14th, I read the next issue of X Factor, X Factor number nine, which will be the subject of episode 206 of this program. So the next episode after this. So yes, night one, I read the book. The morning of day two, I write my preliminary script, my synopsis, a little bit of my thoughts here. And then I will go through it again when I have a free moment. And I'll add or I'll take away. I'll get into the letters, you know, the mailbag. I'll flesh it out over the course of that day whenever I have a, you know, a few moments to sit down and dedicate to it. And then the following day, the third day, I will record it. Well, uh, this time out, I did read X Factor number nine. You know, uh, last night But I sat down to write the script for today And I just had absolutely no motivation Because I was dreading having to record this episode With uh, X-Corp This is the first time that's happened to me um, I've talked about times where I Where this is kind of a chore, right? And I mean, this is just a hobby So this is definitely, you know, caviar problems here in it, Where I'm complaining about a hobby But there are stories like that brew uh, the brew, brood egg thing, right? The king egg Where I said, you know, I thought about stopping the show after reading that Because I hated it so much But I didn't You know, I didn't stop the show I kept doing my regular routine You know, where I did a script And I, you know, worked on it when I had moments Today, though I was just, like, so wiped out Just at the dread of having to discuss this issue again That I couldn't And, I mean, X Factor, uh, spoiler alert Was a good issue because X Factor is a good book, which is getting canceled, and yet this is still around, and so is Excalibur. Now, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I mean, X Corp in and of itself is not a bad idea, right? I mean, we're working with, you know, uh, politics and governments, and I mean, it stands to reason that we would get into a corporate, um, we'd get from a corporate mindset, right? We'd go from a corporate point of view, especially, you know, in. I would say current year, but I think this has been in our minds for longer than that. But, uh, you know, corporations kind of dictate what governments do. And I think that there is the possibility for some intrigue there. It might not be stories that we want to see told. It might not be stories that the current writing team is equipped or um, has the tact to write without turning off like half the readership. Not that they have ever cared about that before. But, I mean, it's not a terrible idea. There is... Not much meat on this bone, but there is meat on this bone. And, you know, um, we've talked a lot about X-Men Unlimited. And what an awful, awful waste of time that was back in the 90s. Except for like, you know, two or three issues of the damn thing. I can't believe I'm saying this, but since this line is so bloated. And of course, this is coming at it from a fan's point of view and not a business person's point of view. Because I'm certainly not that. We almost need... And X-Men Unlimited again 
You know, let's take these these concepts that don't require an entire book. Let's take X Corp. Instead of making it a twenty odd page book, let's make it an eight pager in a, in, a, in, a, in an issue of X Men Unlimited. All we need is eight pages of this crap. Uh, Children of the Atom. Let's shrink that sucker down too. We want to do other world stuff. Yeah, let's shrink that down too. Then hey, you know, if you have a a Dazzler story you want to tell, or a, or a Surge story, or an Eye Boy story, or or hell, bring in uh bring in what is it? Uh, Hindsight and uh you know Ben Deeds. Bring them in for a story. You could do that in an X Men Unlimited. You know, it's not going to overstay its welcome. You do a little short thing, check in with people. Give us the tone and tenor of the post-Krakoa era with, uh, with characters that we don't see a whole heck of a lot. That's my suggestion. Let's dump things like this. <laughs> you know, drop X-Corp. Drop Children of the Atom. These books that just don't have any reason to, uh, to occupy an entire book. And stick them in the brand new X-Men Unlimited. Or, or, I don't know, go for the cheap heat and just call it Giant Size X-Men again. We'll have a new Giant Size X-Men number one, and we can put ads in books saying that it's going to change everything. And uh, <sighs> Yeah, that's basically all I have to say about this book. I don't have much good to say about it. Um, I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's well done. And uh, I, I hated it. And rather than just uh, you know belabor the point any more than I've already done, uh, I'll just leave it there. I'll leave it there. I invite anyone who uh, agrees and disagrees to uh, to write in and let me know uh, your thoughts on this issue here. Uh, we've you know we've got two books that came that just launched right. We have Way of X and uh, an X Corp. Now Way of X, I considered buying many many copies of this thing digitally to give to people because I think this is a book you have to read. Now this one I almost feel guilty because. Some people might buy this to listen along with this program, and if that's the case, I almost feel like I owe you money. Anyway, I said I would stop, so <laughs> I'm going to stop right there. Uh, now let's head into the mailbag here. Let's end things on a uh, on a brighter note. Now we've got a double shot from Damien, and we got a letter from Evan here. So let's start with Damien, who first talks about X-Force number 17. He says, This was a fun but inconsequential story. It's nice to see some of the implications of resurrection being addressed. I just wish this book was more consistently written. If they were all as good as this, I would be an X-Force fan. And you're 100% right. Um, X-Force might be our least consistent book of the entire, uh, you know, X-Family at this point. There are flashes of brilliance. Uh, there are, and I hate using the word brilliance since the internet has uh, kind of cheapened it uh, to basically... If you say something I agree with, then uh, you're brilliant and you're a genius. But um, no, this is a pretty good book when it wants to be. Um, I mean, I've waxed on many, many times about those uh, scenes with Domino and Colossus, where we talked about things like suicide for the very first time post-resurrection protocols, and the concept of um, you know having your memories uh, preserved and uh, how much say you have in how you come back. And I mean, even here with Quentin Quire, we get to see that laundry list of things that he wants amended on his body, right? We find out that he wants, you know, hair follicles removed in certain places and hair color changed naturally and eyesight changed. It's interesting. We get interesting co- concepts here. Um, but then again, we also get, you know, a half dozen pages where we're fighting, you know, nameless, faceless Russian thugs, right? Or Beast being so painfully written that he's, you know, nigh on unrecognizable or unrecognizable, whichever word that is, and also the odd little bits of uh, of trivia that uh, Percy likes to put in there. It's like you can tell 
that he just learned something. So he wants to like interject it into the story to let us know that he knows something. It's uh, It reminds me, I'm pretty sure I've used this uh, reference before, but when uh, Joey on Friends got like the, the V uh, encyclopedia, he was only able to afford one volume of an encyclopedia and it was V. So for the entire rest of the episode, he's trying to like interject things that start with V. Like, talking about volcanoes and, uh, like, Venezuela. Everything is going to the direction of what he is now educated in or informed in, so he can look to be uh, a little bit more intelligent. But that said, there is a lot of good stuff here, and if only it were written to be a little bit more consistent, it would be a book that I, I think we would all look forward to each and every time out, rather than kind of wincing when we know it's on the horizon, like not knowing if we're going to get the Jekyll or the Hyde, right? But, uh, yeah, consistency is key. It's uh, just unfortunate we don't get a whole heck of a lot of it. Now, next, Damien's talking about our little trip off the beaten path, taking a look at Champions number 4, the uh, the outlawed story. Uh, it was a, technically a two-parter, but our characters only showed up in, like, the last page of the first part, so we didn't uh, cover that entire issue. That would have been issue 3, of course. Now, Damien says, I've never read an issue of Champions before, and I was pleasantly surprised. I love the character work on this book, and particularly liked the way Cyclops was presented. I like my Cyclops slightly awkward and dorky. I've never been comfortable with the idea of him trading quips with Wolverine, so I liked the need to impress. My favorite bit was him briefly wearing his champion's costume for old time's sake. It's consistent with him wearing his old X-Factor costume recently. And I kind of agree. Um, I also prefer Cyclops to be, you know, kind of, you know, he's not the cool guy. Right, I remember when they brought him back after the um, the whole Apocalypse 12 thing. I remember they, they were drawing him to be more of like a Tom Cruise character than like the kind of, you know, uptight Scott character. It was kind of the, the Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible sort of a, a gimmick we had there. Uh, his hair was a bit shaggier. He was just a little bit more rough and tumble. And I remember thinking that was kind of awkward because it just didn't fit the Cyclops that, uh, that had been established, right? And, uh, of course, he had come back from, I don't know if it was death, <laughs> but uh, whatever happened when he merged with Apocalypse. So, of course, we can think, okay, you know, uh, changes happened, whatever. But I think, you know, dorkism is, like, on a spectrum where, like, yeah, Cyclops can be awkward. He could be uncomfortable around people. But here he, he would just... I, and, again, I mean, I can't really hold anything against it since he does have these memories of uh, being a time-displaced teen now. So it is kind of a whole different, you know, a Cyclops of a different color, right? The the horse of a different color. It's kind of what we have here. It's uh, an amalgamation of uh, several different Cyclopses here. So you're probably right, <laughs> and I'm probably wrong. But uh, when I saw him wearing that champion's costume, it was just like, dude looks like an absolute geek. And, uh, you know, worst of all, he was only there in that costume for, like, one panel. And then he went away. So it seemed just like a... And I mean, it was an Easter egg. It was harmless. It didn't hurt nobody. It didn't hurt me. It was just uh, something a little weird. Damien continues, I also like the art, which is a good sign for Way of X. And dude, I cannot wait to hear your thoughts on Way of X. Now, Way of X, like I mentioned a few minutes ago, I actually consider just buying a whole bunch of digital copies and giving them out because that's how much I loved that issue and that's how important... I think that issue is to this uh, to this whole overarching story here. I have not been quite as satisfied with a, a single issue of a comic in, boy, a very, very long time. 
So uh, Way of X, I cannot wait for you to get to it, and I cannot wait to hear your thoughts. Now, Damien wraps up with, anyway, until they make a great X-Men film, make mine X-lapsed. I've never seen one. I've never seen one of the X-Men films. I've talked about this before. Um, Just never really my thing here. I thought about it, and I'm pretty sure I've told this story before, so apologies if I'm repeating myself. It is... It is me though, and I do a, I, I you know I do repeat myself an awful lot. I remember seeing a uh, clip of the first X Men movie uh, where Wolverine calls Cyclops a dick, and I that's all I needed to see, and I was like, no, <laughs> that just doesn't seem right to me, uh, so I couldn't watch it. It reminded me of the uh, the recent Teen Titans mess on, uh, is it the DC app? Is that still a thing, or is it on HBO now? I don't know. I, I think I saw. I think I saw a little, you know, tab for it on uh, on HBO now or Max or whatever the hell they call it, where uh, where Robin says "f Batman" in the trailer, and it's just like, yeah, no, no, thank you. I don't need that in my life. So uh, yeah, I don't know if they'll make an, a great X Men film, and if they do, I probably still wouldn't know. But uh, but thank you so so much for checking out a book that you normally wouldn't have uh, to keep up with the show. That really really means a lot, and I'm so happy that you enjoyed it. Um, I don't know if it's I don't know if Champions is a book that I would continue reading unless there were an X Men appearance in it, um, and also I believe that issue or the issue after it was the last one that Eve Ewing did. I think it's a different direction now because they're uh, I don't know if they're post Outlawed or if uh, we're in like a different stage of Outlawed. Um, I'm not sure, but I do know it's a different creator, so. Could be better, could be the same, could be worse. I really couldn't say, but I did enjoy uh, our little visit with that team in uh, in Champions Number Four. So thank you again for checking that one out. Uh, next up, Evan talking about Marvel's voices, Indigenous voices. Now he starts with, "Until someone proves me wrong, I'm believing that the Silver Fox story was the result of the writer or an editor listening to From Claremont to Claremont. It's only a matter of time until Tracy Kins joins the New Reavers." Now, what Evan's referring to there is the fact that in the Silver Fox story, they called back to Wolverine Volume 2, number 47, which, oh boy, um, was the first book that we covered uh, for Wolverine in the From Claremont to Claremont anthology podcast series, which is uh, probably one of my greatest failures in podcasting because it was such a fun idea and I had such a good time doing it, but I just, uh, I hate the excuse of, you know, life happened, but... Life happened, and uh, I kind of fell off of it. it. It is a huge time investment to do a uh, From Claremont to Claremont. Um, recently, we just did the X, X-Labs number 200, which was uh, also kind of a Herculean effort that involved a lot of moving parts and a lot of very, very patient people working with me. And From Claremont to Claremont is uh, is similar. I, I do hope to be getting back to it eventually. It's not completely off the table. It's just a matter of... Um, Making sure I didn't burn too many bridges, I suppose. But uh, in that first episode, uh, we covered Wolverine 47, which came out, I believe, October 1991 cover date, which was the same cover date as X-Men Volume 2, number 1. That's where we started that program. And in it, it was kind of a throwaway story, kind of a filler story, um, which is weird for it being the huge, you know, Mutant Genesis launch month to, to get a, you know, a Wolverine fill-in. The, the main, you know, the new look Wolverine wouldn't start for... Another month or so, we got into the Shiva scenario stuff. But, oh boy, I won't shut up, will I? This story, this villain story, had um, the bit where Wolverine's dog went rabid. 
and uh, Silver Fox had to put it down. And we see the origin of that dog in this uh, Indigenous Voices story. Now, the main point of that issue is that Wolverine was dealing with this uh, kid named Tracykins who was strung out on uh, on all sorts of drugs, and he was uh, he was in the business of getting stupid. That's what he said a few times. I'm I'm getting stupid, and he tried to run over kids with his car. It was it was really really dumb, really really stupid story. I think he killed his mother. He killed a dude at a at a Seven Eleven or something. It was. A really weird story. So seeing a callback to that was just absolutely mind-boggling. I never, ever thought we'd get a callback to uh, Tracy Kins's story, which, I mean, I, when I realized what it was, I popped huge for it. I thought it was just the funnest thing ever here. And, uh, boy, if Tracy Kins joins the New Reavers, I... Oh, boy. That, that's, you know, if anybody from Marvel's listening and hasn't been completely turned off by how I just... Uh, railed against your X-Corp, uh, and you want to give me a job on a one-shot or a uh, anthology, if you're going to bring back X-Men Unlimited, I'll, I'll do something with Tracy Kins joining the New Reavers. Uh, it'll be the greatest thing ever, and uh, we'll all love it. Uh, now, Evan continues, I like Danny's answer to the Cheyenne or Krakoan question, too, but I think she may be in the minority among the residents of Krakoa. Maybe Danny should get one of those empty, quiet council seats to keep the others in check. If this line of thinking is followed up on, and who knows if it will be, she could be a pivotal figure when things start to crumble on Krakoa. And yes, I loved that bit. Um, now, the opening story, I believe it was the op- the first story we covered anyway, was a uh, Danny Moonstar story where she met a uh, new young mutant, and uh, I want to say he lived on a uh, reservation with his grandmother and his little brother here, and he became kind of like public enemy number one here because he had... Uh, he had, uh, you know, unleashed his mutant powers here, scared uh, the sheriff's son who would organize a posse and they would come after him and he'd go running. Danny was brought in to help smooth things over. It was a decent story and I think we're going to see this character again. I think he is... I don't remember his name. <laughs> I don't remember the name they might have given him here, but I think he's going to be part of the uh, Marvel Voices Pride uh, special that uh, we'll probably be covering... In the next month or so, I think he... Somnus? Is it, maybe it's Somnus. He had the same kind of logo. Looked kind of like a night mask from the uh, Marvel New Universe. So that might be him. So we might be seeing this character again. But what Evan is referring to is that uh, when he and Danny were having a heart-to-heart, he asked her if she considers herself more to be a Cheyenne or to be a Krakoan. And, I mean, that's a loaded question, especially with... How tactful writers can be, or how untactful <laughs> writers might be, and Danny's answer was uh, was wonderful. She said, "Both, you know, why can't I be both?" Which is great because I think we've been veering so hard into um, the realm of maybe identity politics with the Krakoans here, and a lot of ethnocentrism, and kind of kind of this weird line where we're eschewing everything that came before. You know, where it's like, I'm not an American anymore, I'm not British anymore, I'm just Krakoan, or I'm not Krakoan because I am British, or I'm not Krakoan because I am American. I mean, not realizing that you, you can be both. And Danny shows that here very, very elegantly. She says, you know, I, I am very proud of where I come from, I'm proud of my roots, and I'm proud of where I am now. You know, and I think it's kind of the Occam's razor answer. It's right. It's the easy answer because it's the truest answer. It has the most heart. And 
you could see that uh, if it is Somnus, you could see Somnus sitting there and he's like thinking it over. He's like, you know, you're right. And I think that was very, very well done. And I totally agree that Danny would make a great, uh, well, no pun intended, voice on the uh, Quiet Council here. Especially considering we, you know, haven't done a whole lot to fill those seats and we're about to, uh, we're, I think we're about to lose Storm too. So it's going to be an extra open seat here. I think, uh, I think Danny would be a great addition to that crew here. But thank you so much for, uh, for first, you know, for checking out Indigenous Voices and for also uh, sending in some thoughts here. That was, I believe, the second of the anthologies that we covered, so it hadn't yet completely veered into uh, X-Men Unlimited territory just yet. It was still an enjoyable read, so I'm glad you checked it out, and I'm very, very happy to hear your thoughts on it. But that is where we will close out the mailbag for today. Uh, If you would like to write in and be part of the mailbag, please, please, I beg for you to do so. You can find me several different ways. First, on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can also find me on Instagram at 90sXmen. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. And you can give a call to the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. I do have a message from that um, that I'm trying to figure out how to uh, download (laughs) so I can include it in a future episode here. So, uh, Troy in Canada, I'm sorry it's taking me so long. I'm just trying to... uh, Get my feet under me here. Um, but again, 623-396-JERK. And that's for any of your thoughts on the show, any of your thoughts on the X stuff. If you want to just tell the story of how you discovered the X-Men, your favorite stories, please feel free to do so. This is uh, this is everybody's show. So uh, I would love to hear your voices on it. Uh, for blog posts and show notes, you can head to chrisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook at 90s X-Men, where uh, we're probably going to be talking a lot about X-Corp. <laughs> In the next couple days So uh, if you'd like to chime in I would love for you to do so Finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comic commentary needs You can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com Available at every podcast aggregation place That you uh, might know of and or use And if you like what you hear there Despite of this episode uh, I would love for you to spread the word Share the show Tell a friend or two And ask them to do the same It would really, really help the show out it would really, really do me a whole lot of good, and I would uh, thank you all so much to do so. Speaking of which, I would like to thank you all so much for uh, well, sticking with me for this episode here. This was a toughie. This was uh, probably the most difficult episode I've ever recorded. I don't want to be the negative guy. I hate, you know, being the, the ranter, you know. Um, it's just not in my uh, content creation makeup. I, I like being positive, uh, or at very worst, neutral, you know. But this was a toughie, so I do apologize if I came across as a little too rough on this one. Um, Again, if you have uh, thoughts to the contrary, please, I invite you to let me know here. Maybe I missed something. I'm, you know, you know me, uh, my self-esteem is very, very low. And so I always assume that uh, my uh, my point of view is the wrong point of view. So uh, you let me know if that's the case. I would love to hear from you. But thank you again so much for hanging out with me today. And until next time, as always... I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Welcome to episode 206 of X-Lapsed And uh, if you're back with me after last episode, um, I can't thank you enough <laughs> That was a very, very tough episode Episode 205, talking about X-Corp That was a, oof, that was a tough one That was a very tough one here So if you're back, uh, it means the world to me that you'd come back to uh, this episode here Now today, we're going to be talking about a penultimate issue, unfortunately The second-to-last issue of X-Factor, which... Well, for all intents and purposes, may as well just be the finale Because, uh, you know, next issue is going to be Hellfire Gala I'm sure that uh, Leia Williams isn't going to get a whole heck of a lot of time To really uh, devote to closing off um, things that she introduced during this uh, very, very fun volume So, let's get into it here Now, this is, of course, X-Factor Volume 4, Number 9 This had a July 2021 cover date. The story is called Interlude, DJ Mark's Mixtape of Mojoverse Beats to Make Out To, which is somehow um, like a tame tame title compared to what we usually get here. Uh, Of course, our writer, Leo Williams, art, David Baldion, colors, Israel Silva, letters, VCs, Joe Caramagna, designs, Tom Muller, head of Exus Hickman. Edits, Andrews Andrews Belasteros, one of these days I'll be able to say that, Thomas White and Sabalski, cover price $3.99, went on sale May 12 of 2021. Now, we open with a mostly blank quote page from Wind Dancer. Remember Sophia, who, uh, who we saw blow her own brains out on uh, Adam X's show in Mojo World, or the Mojoverse. I, I don't know what, you're, what we're calling it here. Uh, she's talking about how now she is the babysitter to either Mojo World or the Mojoverse, whatever we're calling it. This kind of spoils where we're headed here. Uh, maybe this should have been the last page? I mean, for all I know, maybe it is the last page of the digital version, because it's not like weekly print comics are all that much of a priority these days. Now, double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. Our characters include Northstar, Prodigy, Prestige, Eyeboy, Polaris, Dakin, Dakin, and uh, Aurora with the Roll Eyes. Now, we open with X-Factor traipsing and chrono-skimming through Siren's psyche in order to seek out and root out the Morrigan. Now, there isn't a whole lot to see here, because the Morrigan has made this place rather hazy. All we really can see clearly is this giant purple and black eyeball hovering over some trees here. Now you see the team is trying to check out Siren's memories from before the resurrection protocols were a thing. Specifically, the Founders Party that we saw at the end of House of X number 6, and we talked about that at length way back in episode 11 of this program, a hundred years ago. Now, uh, Rachel explains that uh, she keeps hearing the word... Gaius? 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 It's a G-E-A-S, um, since I'm sure I'm like pronouncing it like I'm talking about a bunch of gooses. Geese? I don't know. Now, Dakin, Dakin, refers to this as a god-powered gag order, and Prodigy expands upon that. It's something out of Irish folklore, which, I mean, despite me being very Irish myself, I've never heard of. So maybe I'm a uh, lapsed Irish? I don't know. Now, the gimmick here 
is that a Gaius, Gaius is a set of conditions imposed on someone from an extra-human or godlike being uh, in order to make them do something under threat of punishment, right? So we might assume here that the Morgan is burying Siren's memories here. This is, uh, she doesn't want the, uh, you know, the her origin in as far as what this story pertains to to be known. Now, back in the real world, Kyle, who, thanks to Leia Williams, is someone I can actually follow, finally call by name when I see him, because, I mean, who knew his name before this? Uh, he returns home from babysitting Jubilee's baby Benjamin Button here, um, and that's a, a movie reference, uh, which I don't know if I'm actually using right, because I don't see movies, but uh, Shogo seems to be de-aging every time we see him, and I think that's the gimmick of that Benjamin Button movie, so uh, if I'm wrong, I'm sorry. Uh, he asks Polaris, who is remaining outside of the Chrono Skim, what's going on. Inside, Rachel has what she refers to as a terrible idea, and so she pops out to chat up Lorna about it. And I sure hope she's not thinking about uh, growing out that rat tail again, because that it would be a pretty terrible idea. Though, I mean, the lady who cuts my hair did say that mullets were on their way back. I, I don't get it. Anyway, thankfully that is not her plan here. Now, her plan has more to do with making a mutant daisy chain of sorts, uh, you know, using powers in tandem. We're seeing a lot of that uh, these days, aren't we? And, uh, and that, that works. Now, this will somehow uh, softball the team past the Geass. Doesn't make much sense to me, but I'll just take Rachel's word for it. Now, in a cute bit, Kyle asks Rachel to ask Northstar what he wants for dinner. You see, John Paul is currently inside Siren's psyche, so it's kind of funny that Kyle's trying to use Rachel as a uh, go-between here. Now, Rachel looks at him like he's got three heads, but she does it anyway. Now, neither of them can figure out what they want to eat tonight, uh, but neither of them really want to cook either. Rachel finally says screw it and just pops Kyle into the psyche so they can, you know, talk this out, hash this out. It's a fun little sidebar, and just another one of those reasons why I'm going to be missing this book so much when it ends. Anyway, once dinner's decided... Well, it's actually not. Northstar just says to order out to whoever might deliver to Krakoa, so we don't know what they're having. Now, after that, our team heads even further into the psyche, and they happen across a full-page spread of what looks like a blackened heart. So, full-pager. I mean, I'm guessing the axe might not have fallen on this book until after this one was drawn, because that's not efficient use of uh, the few pages we have left. Anyway, info-page, and... Um, you know I complain a lot about info pages, and you know that I always mention that I complain a lot about info pages, but, well, damn it, here's another thing about X-Factor that I'm going to miss. Um, now, what we get in this info page looks like it was going to be leading to a great story. It's Northstar having a text conversation with Danny Moonstar, talking about how he doesn't exactly trust the Quiet Council. Now, if you recall, Professor X had inquired about I-Boy's powers, because they had uh, been shown as being far more powerful than anyone could have ever told. And he asked if John Paul would keep the Council updated, to which, in awesome North Star fashion, he simply responded with a no. So it sucks that we're not going to be getting any more of this. And yet, we have Excalibur and X-Corp stinking up the shelves. I, it's, it's just not fair, is it? Anyway, back to comics and back inside the psyche. iBoy does that thing where he sees through stuff, as we just, uh, you know, had reference to in that info page. And Northstar, he warns him not to, maybe not to tell anyone about this ability. Which, of course, continues that story thread that, uh, we're probably not going to get to see play out here. 
Now, Dakin, Dakin, suggests that this nasty beating heart, or whatever it is, uh, needs or demands a blood sacrifice. Northstar asks what this, uh, what the goal of this would be, right? Dakin, Dakin figures that maybe it'll wake up the enchantment. I'm not exactly sure what any of this means, but, uh, we'll just go with it. From here, the, uh, Gaius, or Gaius, whatever it is, it drops a riddle on our team here. Goes a little something, or exactly, like this. A father to his father, a warrior who is no killer, a traveler who goes nowhere, a secret keeper who shares everything. Bring an impossibility to battle and win, and only then will the Morrigan admit defeat. And, since we're in heavy truncation mode here, Prodigy solves this riddle in the very next panel. Now, the Geus requires Shatterstar. Now, we knew we'd eventually be getting back to him, yes, uh, but I ask you this. How does Shatterstar solve this riddle? Huh. Well, Prodigy doesn't want to answer it because, holy smokes, is it confusing. It would probably take up the second half of this issue just to uh, try and make sense of it. I will do my best to fill in the blank here. Now, you all remember X-Men Volume 2, Number 11, right? Uh, That was the last Jim Lee issue. And in it, the blue team, the X-Men blue team, uh, they went into Mojo World, or the Mojo-verse, whichever it is, and they had an adventure with Longshot and Dazzler. Now, it was revealed there that Allison was pregnant. That was the end of the issue. And it was assumed that Shatterstar might be the baby. Now, Shatterstar was only around for like a year at this point, and uh, folks had been pointing out some similarities between he and Longshot, And, of course, this was the early 90s where, like, every character had to have some sort of nebulous connection to another character, or at least an assumed connection. Now, this wouldn't be touched on for many, many, many years. And I think a lot of us just, like, registered it in our brain as, like, maybe it was just a nod, a cute little funny thing to, you know, address fan speculation, or maybe an Easter egg. And it would actually be revealed that Allison lost the baby around X-Men 47, 48-ish, volume 2, of course. This is right after the Age of Apocalypse here. Um, You may remember these issues from, like, the X-Babies being on the cover, which uh, was a spectacularly dull story. But it's where we found out that Allison lost the baby. Only she didn't lose the baby. Um, She successfully delivered the baby, Shatterstar but had her brain mind-wiped of the event. And then Shatterstar was swept a hundred years into the future, where he was experimented on by Ariz, or Arise. This is uh, the scientist from the Longshot miniseries. Now, Ariz, or Arise, would uh, create Longshot from Shatterstar's DNA. Then, back in the past, or present, I guess, Longshot would knock Allison up, and she'd have Shatterstar. Kind of a paradox, right? But, uh... In essence, Shatterstar is the father to his father. You dick? Now, uh, this was all explained far better in X-Factor number 259. That was September 2013, cover date by Peter David, uh, who seemed to be having a real good time playing with this uh, very, very odd concept. And I tell you, when I read it, it made perfect sense. But when I think about it now, it's like, how did that work? <laughs> One of these days, I'll have to actually go back and read that uh that little arc there. I think it was uh, the end of X-Factor or the... Uh, it was something like that. But it was uh, it was fun. So now, we're off to the Mojoverse to save Shatterstar. Only problem here is that X-Factor's been banned. You know, after their stay there, they're not allowed to come back. So they're going to have to enlist the aid of some pals in order to get this done. 
I don't know why they're adhering to the ban, considering what they're about to do in the Mojoverse, but uh, I guess maybe they're trying to be diplomatic. And so let's do a second roll call this issue. DJ, the kid who we saw in uh, Way of X. Lila Cheney, who we see in Sword. Wind Dancer, who we just saw in friggin' X-Corp. Surge, who is a really nice piece of X-Men wallpaper. And Dazzler, Shatterstar's mother and uh, maybe sort of kind of daughter-in-law. Maybe was thought to be at one point or... I, I, her and Longshot never got married, but uh, you get what I'm trying to say here. Now, they are being sent in as a distraction. They're going to put it on this, like, rockin' concert, like we see on the cover, while the New Mutants rush the big boss, Mojo himself, to overthrow the entire works. So, uh, taking Mojo World out? Uh, that's a story I, I will wholeheartedly endorse. Um... Can we hire the New Mutants to maybe take out Saturnine and Omenas Verendi next so we don't have to deal so much with Madripoor and Otherworld? Huh? Maybe? Now, in this page here, we get a Nature Girl appearance, which I guess I don't have too many bad things to say about since she doesn't actually get a line. Those of you who have listened to Generation X Lapsed know uh, that Nature Girl is not one of my favorites. Now, to the story, unfortunately... It doesn't really get any room to breathe here. Uh, We are in heavy truncation mode. It's basically a two-page spread of this concert. And then a page of magic threatening Mojo into signing on to a uh, Krakoan partnership treaty. And uh, that's it. Like, really. Um, And I mean, I can't hold this against our creative team. They've only got like a half dozen pages left to tie off these loose ends. And uh, Ms. Williams did say that uh, the axe came down on this book while she was halfway through uh, this issue. So, I mean, we don't have a lot of time here. And next issue, as we mentioned, I mean, this is basically it. Um, Because we have the Hellfire Gala, so it's not going to be... I don't think it's going to be a traditional X-Factor issue. Kind of like the X of Swords issue we had here, where only Polaris showed up and didn't do a whole lot of X-Factoring, right? So this... I think for all intents and purposes, this is sadly it. So yeah, now Mojo World, or the Mojoverse, is now in cahoots with Krakoa. And Wind Dancer is designated babysitter of the place, which we, you know, found out in the little quote in the beginning. And Shatterstar is now free to leave. Now, in an awkward bit, he thanks Dazzler for the assist. And Allison gives him, like, a no prob, Bob, which uh, tells me that maybe she doesn't know that he's really her son. Maybe? I I can't remember. Whatever the case, she doesn't have time to chat, because, don't you know, there's a Hellfire Gala coming up? we got to mention that. We've got to mention that. We cannot forget. So from here, Shatterstar has to fight the Morrigan. And so he does. Now, we learn here that Siren struck a deal with the Morrigan. You see, the baddie decided that she was going to kill lots and lots and lots of mutants. Now, Siren offered herself up as, like, a regular mutant sacrifice instead. Like, she would die over and over and over again to save her fellow mutants from the same fate. Which, I mean, that is noble, right? But we've got the resurrection protocols, and the overall devaluing of mutant life and death uh, doesn't really speak to this to me. Anyway, we jump into, like, this weird sort of tapestry. Uh, the Morrigan story is being told sort of like like an ancient myth or something here, like it's on a scroll. Now, she's upset that the mutants have beaten death, and as such, they have no use for or fear of a death goddess such as herself. 
And so she decided an endless stream of mutant deaths would be in her best interest to, uh, I don't know, maintain relevance. Um, It doesn't much matter. Shatterstar runs her through with his blades. And as the Morrigan dies, she puts a curse on Shatterstar and Richter. And that's where we leave it. Next time out, we've got Way of X number two. I've been looking forward to that one. Um, since uh, closing Way of X number one and putting it back in its uh, in its bag, I just could not wait. It's weird how um, this week of X lapsed for uh, those of you who f- are following in real time. A very um, bipolar week. Uh, we've got Man Thing and X Corp on one hand, and then we've got books like this, X Factor, which is wonderful, and uh, Way of X, which boy is on a whole other level. It's a uh, Quite the whiplash here in terms of uh, quality And, or, or I guess my perception of quality And my overall enjoyment of uh, not only these books But uh, I guess performing these episodes here So it's it's very weird But uh, let's talk about this issue here Which, I mean, the watchword is truncation, right? And it sucks, it really sucks that they uh, that they pulled the plug with so little notice because there are so many fun things about this series that I'd like to see play out. I want to see Aurora and Dakin Dakin do whatever they're going to do together. I don't know what is going to happen to them. Are they going to still be... Are they still going to be featured anywhere? I don't know. I mean, Leia Williams is going on to do the Trial of Magneto mini, so I'm guessing X-Factor might play a role there. But, I mean, I don't see them being the... Primary focus considering That uh, you know it is a Magneto Based story and it looks like it's going to be I don't know If it's going to be informing what's to come here But I think it's going to have some um, It's going to have some pretty big ramifications On it and Unfortunately I think that's a little bit above the Relevance level of X Factor If we're going by things like Sales figures um, Which we don't have solid sales figures But it is always At the bottom of the uh, of the X list here, uh, alongside Cable and uh, and Excalibur, but uh, only two of those books got canceled. Huh, that's weird. Anyway, I want to see more of this Dakin Dakin Aurora relationship. I want to see more of Northstar growing into a leadership role. I want to see more about his distrust of the Quiet Council and Iboy's progression here, as to finding out a little bit more about what he can see here. How far can he see? Can he see through time? Can he see the past? Can he see through walls? Can he see the no place? So many questions that I'd like to see answered, and unfortunately, we just don't have adequate time to address all of them. Uh, prodigy. We have we have the possibility that there's another Prodigy out there. Is this going to be picked up again? I just don't know. Now, one of the things that... We've mentioned a lot and uh, has been brought up on the Facebook group with our friends over there Is that X-Factor is one of the handful of books that actually has a reason to exist, right? It has a mission statement that's different from just like, here are just some mutants You know, read about them <laughs> Buy the book because it's it's got the Tom Muller, uh, you know, uh, typeface on it this actually has a reason to exist here. It's it's about, you know, investigating, looking into and exploring mutant deaths here, confirming mutant deaths here. I think this is something that had actual legs under it, right? Despite the fact that I, you know, I was not a fan of the mojo bit at the beginning, right? But 
it played into the overarching story that we're going for here. We needed to confirm that Windancer was dead in order to bring her back, right? And so we had to actually not so much forensically look into things here, but in a way, kind of, right? We had to go and we had to find out exactly what happened. And, I mean, it, it's just a fun idea. I mean, more on that, uh, we had uh, Aurora die in the first issue. We don't know exactly what happened there to her in Washington State. So many good things about this book, and it just it has a reason to exist. Meanwhile, it's like we've got the book about Otherworld, which doesn't friggin' matter anymore. We've got X-Corp, which never mattered. We've got Wolverine fighting vampires. <laughs> I mean... Oh, boy. I, I mean, Wolverine is still selling very, very well. We don't have numbers, of course, but it is usually the second highest selling X book in the entire line. So I guess we'll hand that one to them. Um, so what do we got here? Uh, we have more of the Morrigan, which I think is a story. Uh, maybe overstayed its welcome a little bit, especially considering how uh, precious these remaining pages are, right? We don't have a whole lot of real estate to play with here, and... The fact that the axe fell during the Morrigan story is kind of unfortunate because I don't know that we were going to learn about the Morrigan just yet. It feels like we were going to have to explore a little bit more. I think this was going to get a lot more room to be fleshed out, and um, unfortunately it wasn't. And uh, instead we're jam-packing this in here. We have the very, very abrupt shift into Mojo World, um, which again, not a fault of the creative team. They are doing the very best they can with what little uh, paginal real estate they have left, and as such, they did a they did a spectacular job given the circumstances here. I love that there's an actual effort being placed here in tying off loose ends here, and as you know, it's funny. I think about, uh, and I think I've referenced this before, but. When Reggie and I were covering the Young Animal books, and uh, this is where you all roll your eyes at uh, another mention of the Young Animal books and the Young Animal Gatherum series here on the channel, available in the archives if you want them, there was a very abrupt cancellation uh, during the second season of those books where the axe fell. And basically, creators had one of two options. They either truncate, they cut some of the fat, they trim some of the fat here, and uh, they get their story where it needs to be. They get their story to the point where they can comfortably end it, or they jam everything in there and don't give anything room to breathe. They don't let go of any of their brilliant ideas. They just push them all in there where none of them have the impact that they were supposed to. And then you're left with a bloated mess. The examples in Young Animal were Mother Panic Gotham AD, which did a great job of just trimming the fat. You know, took out bits that... We're probably going to get their own story arc, but with the realization that you only have X amount of pages left, decided not to uh, pursue everything, right? Left some of the things out, omitted bits that may not serve the, the abrupt ending here. Uh, maybe just took little bits and pieces. On the other hand, you have Shade the Changing Woman that um, was just uh, so convinced with its own brilliance <laughs> that... It tried to stick everything in there. It There were so many storylines that were not given any room to breathe here. Nothing was yanked out. It was just shove, 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 and it was to its detriment. Now, I can understand both schools of thought. 
You know, you can pull things out to tell a more succinct story that'll maybe read a little bit better in collected edition uh, later on down the line here. Won't overwhelm the reader. And I can also see wanting to cram as much as you can in there because you don't know if you're ever going to get an opportunity to... I mean, is there going to be another Shade the Changing Girl or Shade the Changing Woman book? Probably not. So you probably just got to get... You got to get your stuff in. So I can understand the reasoning for it. I don't like it, and I didn't like the way they did it, but I can understand it. Here with X Factor, we're not shoving, 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 shoving. We are pulling little elements out here. We're leaving things for either Leia Williams to carry on later or maybe for another writer to pick up on. These mysteries that we're talking about, um, the Dak and Aurora relationship, the prodigy, um, the dupe, the potential dupe of prodigy, iBoy's ever-increasing powers here, what happened to Aurora in Washington. A lot of these questions that we're not going to get the room to get answers for, we're not just cramming in information here to do it. That said, hopefully I'm not being a little premature here, and hopefully next issue of X Factor, issue 10, won't have like our, you know, our team sitting at a table at the Hellfire Gala all talking about all the secrets, right? It's like, oh yes, we found out that David has a has a dupe and we uh, we took care of it already. It's done. Or, oh yeah, iBoy can see this and did you know Morris living underground? Hopefully we don't do that kind of thing. Hopefully we just uh we let those things bubble and simmer and hopefully they get picked up again somewhere down the line here. Overall, this is a difficult issue to really Discuss outside of the uh, outside of the external you know circumstances here. I enjoyed it. Some of it I didn't understand because uh, you know the mysticism and the Gaius stuff, Gaius stuff. I don't I don't get it. But I, I'm the way it was told. I was given enough information to roll with it, so it was fine. I don't have any complaints considering you know the circumstances, of course. So if you're enjoying X Factor, you'll enjoy this issue. Um, It's a little bit different from other issues where our characters really don't get a whole lot of room to shine here, um, especially during the second half. The first half feels very much like a traditional Volume 4 X-Factor issue here. We've got, you know, Kyle and Northstar talking about dinner. (laughs) You know, that was fun. That was very fun. Uh, When when Rachel's about to... Rachel's about to give her, the team, the the plan, her awful idea, and I think Northstar or somebody says, I'm all ears. And then iBoy says, I'm all. And everyone's like, no, don't say it. Don't say it. And he goes, eyes. And it was funny. It was cute. Felt very much like a, you know, just like a regular issue of this book. But then the worm turned, the axe fell, and we had to just sprint for the end here. So a lot to like, a lot to get frustrated about. Not pertaining to this book, but just to the, uh, to the nature of comics, I guess, right now. But uh, worth a read. If you're enjoying this book, you'll enjoy this issue. So uh, not a whole heck of a lot more to say, even though I've droned on for quite some time. Uh, let's put a pin in that for now and head over to the mailbag here, where we've got we've got a tale of two Hellions here. We've got two discussions of Hellions number 10. And then we have a day and date missive from uh, Andrew about the very book we covered today. So let's start with Damien, who's talking about Hellions number 10. He says, Hellions always hits a certain level of competence. The characters are well presented and the dialogue works, but I've struggled to enjoy this arc. I really don't like this current version of Arcade. 
It's pretty clear that when Claremont and Byrne invented him, they were looking to create a Marvel version of the Joker. Throughout Claremont's run, he was always childish and often extremely murderous, but never sadistic. Since Avengers Arena, he seems to be following the same trajectory as the actual Joker. I don't want to see him pulling teeth. I particularly dislike the implication that Arcade would be using Ms. Locke as a sex robot. This seems like a complete misunderstanding of their relationship. When she was alive, Arcade and Ms. Locke were shown as two friends who enjoyed playing games together, and there was absolutely no sexual chemistry between them. In fact, Claremont strongly suggested that Arcade was gay. He also implied that Ms. Locke was romantically interested in Courtney Ross during the early Excalibur run. If you really want Arcade to be sexing his robots, go for something crazy, like one of the Looney Tunes takeoffs from that Marvel Comics Presents Excalibur story. And you know, I, I agree in that um, I see a character like Arcade as being in like a weird arrested development, right? He's, he's very immature, he's very childish. Uh, as you mentioned, he, you know, he's a childish character. I don't see him as being sexual in any way. I could see him getting getting his jollies off pulling Sinister's teeth. That I could see. I could see him doing that simply to, like, out-Sinister Sinister, right? Because he's even in there, in that issue, like, Sinister agrees to do the clone farm, like, right off the bat. And, of course, we find out that that was kind of always the plan in the first place. Sinister and Mastermind were trying to use Arcade to facilitate this sort of uh, deniability in the clone farm. And that was the ultimate goal. So he says, yes, I want to do it. And Arcade's like, well, no, you're, you're ruining the game. I, I, I want to torture you. I want to hurt you. I want to, I want to do the things that you're going to do. You know, I want to, I want to play. And uh, I can see him pulling teeth. I, I, I kind of dug that. The Mizlock sex robot thing, I agree. It was a, it's a funny way to uh, show Arcade as being depraved. Um, and it makes you question what he might do with these clones before he kills them over and over and over again. Uh, you know, but uh, I don't see him as being sexual uh, at all. That said, I maybe not for Arcade, but I do like the idea. I like the idea that this is something that he's going to do here, especially considering we get some really fun reactions. Like we have Sinister watching Havoc um, humping the <laughs> the Madeline Pryor robot, and he's kind of just like, ugh. And Arcade kind of takes offense to that because he's like, well, that's kind of what I'm doing too. I like that as a, as a trope, I guess, or as a, I don't know, um, as a layer of characterization, just maybe not for Arcade, I guess. Uh, Damien continues, Of course, the character work was on point. I definitely feel like Quanan's story is coming to a head. I do hope her appearances in Excalibur don't derail this Hellion storyline. I'm glad that Madeline Pryor is still a part of this book even after her death and lack of resurrection. I'm fascinated to see where this goes. We know there's another Inferno coming. Could Alex be a key part of it? Now, I too am hopeful that Quanan showing up in Excalibur, like, I think for the past three or four issues, I hope that's not leading to something more uh, where... Where we're gonna have you know Betsy and Quanon on Excalibur? I don't need to see that. We've seen quite enough of it. It's only in this book that we're you know we're actually building a character here. It feels like for the first time ever, Quanon is stepping out of you know her purple-haired shadow here a little bit. You know we're actually getting conflict of hers that doesn't 
I mean, of course, we did have the the mojo-eyed Betsy's attacking her in this story here, but at the core of it, it's about her child. It's about Quanan's uh, daughter, which doesn't have a whole lot to do with Betsy. It's its own thing. It's actually a story that we don't need Betsy for. <laughs> we don't need to repeatedly reference the fact that, did you know, Betsy Braddock once inhabited Quanan's body. We don't need to see that crap here. This is something altogether different. So hopefully, hopefully Teeny will be done with her over next caliber after the Hellfire Gala. And uh, hopefully Hellions doesn't get canceled after the Hellfire Gala. And we can get a little bit more of this here. Uh, Madeline being part of this book, she still looms large over this book, which is something I was afraid was not going to happen. Part of me thought that once they decided not to bring her back, Alex was going to pout for a minute and then just be over it. I like that we're still playing with what is a very traumatic thing, right? Um, She was alive not too long ago, and the Quiet Council refuses to bring her back, despite the fact that, you know, their laws on clones are uh, a little wishy-washy. But uh, it makes it seem like the Madeline uh, lack of resurrection is a little bit more personal, and I'm pretty sure we can probably tell that it, it is. Now, I don't know that she'll be part of Inferno. Uh, Inferno is an interesting thing where I feel like we're being pulled in a couple of different directions with it. I feel like the name in and of itself is meant as a misdirection. Like we're supposed to evoke, you know, thoughts of the Goblin Queen and Sinister and, 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 you know, these babies being taken into limbo when it'll be perhaps a Mystique and Destiny story instead. Also... I feel like we might be veering, we might be overcorrecting a little bit and just assuming that, no, no, it can't be about babies. It's got to be about Mystique and Destiny, to which maybe it won't be. You know, it's it's very interesting because I, I couldn't tell you exactly what's what just yet. The only thing that I can say about Inferno is that uh, I'm just kind of annoyed that we're just getting these events <laughs> back to back to back to back here. Uh, it feels like we're not, we can't get through with what well, we haven't even started the Hellfire Gala when they announced Inferno, which is like two major story arcs away. We've got Hellfire Gala, Trial of Magneto, and Inferno. It's like, how can we, can we just, can we take care of now? You know, can we enjoy now instead of worrying about what's to come for just like, just a little while? I mean, ever since X of Swords ended, it's all about, hey, did you guys know the Hellfire Gal is coming? It's like, well, yeah, no crap. It'll get there, right? It's it's inevitable. <laughs> the books will get there. Can we maybe explore some stuff now instead of like these kind of throwaway lame duck arcs that are just here to fill time until we get to the next big event? I mean, that that's not an X complaint. That's just a comics complaint, unfortunately. I just wish... I wish the industry was a little bit healthier, where we can just enjoy some just some regular stories every now and again. Anyway, Damien continues, and he says, On to the discussion of ranking the Reign of X books. I did ask for folks to uh, give us a tier list of the, uh, of the Reign of X books here, so Damien provides us with the following. He says, I would have to put four books at the very top. Marauders, X-Factor, New Mutants, and Hellions. I have to read them on the day they come out, and I always get something out of them. And yeah, you know, as far as Reign of X books are concerned, those are the tops. Uh, not counting, you know, things like Way of X, which only have, you know, an issue or two out, but books that, you know, came out of X of and hit the ground running. Yeah, that's as good as it's going to get, I think. Marauders has, has been the, 
uh, you know, the most consistent book since we even started doing this show. X-Factor has been a delight. New Mutants finally has a direction. And Hellions, I mean, Hellions is Hellions. Uh, Damien continues, second tier would be Cable and Sword. I quite enjoy reading both of them, but I'm happy to wait for Unlimited as I don't feel invested in the characters or the situations as much. I don't get upset if I spot a spoiler before reading them. I think these are two books that uh, you're kind of safe, like, waiting for uh, Unlimited to pick up, because, uh, as far as I can tell, not very many people are talking about either of them. I'm guessing that Cable uh, number 12 will deliver many, many spoilers. (laughs) I think people will decide that that's when they want to talk about Cable pretty soon, but, uh, yeah, I think you're safe to leave those, uh, leave those for, you know, two or three months down the line. Now, personally, I'd probably slot Sword a little bit lower, um, simply because of the space stuff. It's just not not my thing. Uh, there are a lot of clever things in it, and as much as it pains me to admit, uh, Al Ewing is a darn good writer. Damien continues, Third tier is specifically reserved for X-Men. Some of the very best and some of the very worst issues have been in X-Men. Sometimes reading it feels like a punishment, and sometimes it's an absolute joy. X-Men is the book which I buy when it sounds interesting, and I skip at other times and wait for Unlimited. Basically, I'm buying all the Mystique issues. And that is probably the um, the perfect explanation of uh, the X-Men flagship book here. It's responsible for some of the dirt-worst issues we've covered on the show, and also some of the very, very best. The, the Mystique issue, uh, issue 5, or 6, I think it was 6, Issue 6, focusing on Mystique and her time at the Orcus Forge from her point of view. Wonderful, wonderful issue. The, you know, the, re- the reveal that uh, you know, Destiny knew about Krakoa and to burn it down, I mean, it's fantastic. Uh, the next issue with the Crucible, I mean, there's hardly an episode goes by that we don't mention that one, right? So yeah, there's some very, very strong stuff in X-Men, but then there's also some not-so-great stuff. Now, Damien continues... Fourth tier is the I don't care anymore tier, and that's where we place Excalibur. It features a great rogue, and I enjoy that weirdo Jamie Braddock more than I probably should, but I'm just finding it tiresome. I don't know how these stories are inspiring Marcus Toe to produce such wonderful artwork. Life has been full on for me recently, and I just don't have the patience left to give the benefit of the doubt anymore. And I agree. I think I would probably slot Excalibur lower than the fourth tier, but uh, yeah, I... You know, I feigned caring about Excalibur when they did that uh, little two-part fox hunt thing with the uh, with the werewolves that gave us Amazing Baby, simply because it wasn't uh, it was another world, and it gave us an opportunity to actually enjoy the company of our characters here. But then it was like, okay, back to Coven's, back to other world. It's it's very very dull. It really doesn't feel like it has much of a purpose anymore now that Exitens is over with, because I mean. Got to give it the, give it its due. It did build up the X of Swords event, which, like it or not, was the focus of this line for a little while. I mean, twenty-two issues of the main story, a bunch of lead-up. It's a uh, you know, it stands to reason that other world was going to be a focus at that point. But now, a little, a little too much. It's it's tiresome. Absolutely. Damien continues. Finally, we come to the bottom tier, which is reserved for the Benjamin Percy books. I just don't like X Force or Wolverine. Ultimately, they're covering territory that isn't for me. I've never been that interested in violent Black Ops-style stories. I generally prefer lighter and funner stories. Even though it's at the bottom, I have to acknowledge that there are often moments or ideas that I enjoy in these stories, so I wouldn't want to say they're at the bottom because I don't like Benjamin Percy's writing. 
He's just employed to create a book that isn't for me. And that's fair. That's that's a very uh, fair way of putting it. Um, sometimes these stories aren't for us. Um, things like Excalibur, like I just talked about, not stories that I want, right? Uh, I can take the Percy stuff uh, a little bit better than I can take the Teeny Howard corner of the uh, of the X books right now. Uh, the Black Ops stuff, also really not for me. Um, but there are flashes of really good storytelling in X Force and uh, Wolverine as well. Um, the Pale Girl story might have been a little bit eh, and the vampire stuff is really not uh, you know rocking my socks. But the Legacy House thing, the auction uh, with Maverick, that was pretty cool. It kind of overstayed its welcome, but it was pretty cool for what it was. Over in X-Force, we've had some pretty philosophical discussions about uh, about suicide, and, I mean, it gives us a lot of good food for thought, but it also gives us hyper-violence, uh, hundreds of deaths of Quentin Quire, and Beast acting like an absolute sociopath. So I guess we take the good, and uh, we take the bad. Uh, Damien continues, Ultimately, this is probably the strongest lineup of X-Books that I can remember. There's nothing bad enough to rank it alongside the likes of Fallen Angels, and the art teams are consistently excellent. My tiers are definitely top-heavy. Well, you're right. The art in these books, I struggle to think of a single complaint that I might have about the uh, regular crew, regular art teams on any of these books here. We've had a couple of uh, fill-ins that haven't really been to my liking. A uh, recent issue of X-Force was, uh, was really... Kind of amateurish, wasn't uh, wasn't my cup of tea. Um, gave us some very very strange looking characters, but uh, as far as our regular artists are concerned, um, really top tier stuff, really really good stuff here. And uh, as for ranking something alongside uh, Fallen Angels, X Corp is making me wish we had six more issues of Fallen Angels, and that is a uh, I don't say that lightly. Anyway, Damien wraps up with, Until Miss Lock gets resurrected when they discover that High Camp is a mutant power. <laughs> Make mine next lapsed. And you know, I think that might be the first time I ever thought about Ms. Locke uh, being a mutant or not being a mutant. I don't know that I've ever given her all that much thought uh, in general. So, uh, wow, that's interesting But uh, thank you so much for writing in about Hellions And also for giving the uh, your tier list here I'd love to hear more of uh, people's tier lists here I think that's a very interesting topic And um, might make us appreciate some of these books a little bit more than we do And may point out some flaws in some books that we may not notice I think this is a, could be some very fun conversations And I invite everyone to uh, to share theirs as well Next up, Evan is talking about that very same issue. Hellions number 10, and he agrees with Damien here. He says, I hate to say it, but I was disappointed in this Hellions outing. There were good elements, as you mentioned, but this one didn't reach the heights of previous issues. Maybe it's closer to the second and third issue, as my admiration for this series wasn't really clinched until number four. There were good character moments, but just not enough for me to overcome the torture elements. Plus, this feels like it would have been better served as another two-parter, a la the Festival of Swords issues and the Wrightbots issues. And, um, you know, you might be right that this could have been better paced as a two-parter instead of a three. But, I mean, we had to fill time. Uh, this is a, an unfortunate thing where every few months we have an event. We gotta fill the time, and uh, we don't do one-offs really anymore, except in Hickman's X-Men where he might drop drop a hint of something that won't occur for a year and a half, and then we can all proclaim the, the issue that we were bored by a year and a half ago was actually brilliant in hindsight. We don't get those in the other books so much. 
So I think this was a case more of, hey, we've got three issues we need filled until we get to the Hellfire Gala. And so a story that may have been more suited to uh, two issues is now being stretched into three. It's uh, it's another one of them signs of the times, I guess. Uh, Evan continues, I admit I'm kind of cruelly hoping that this story wraps up with Cyclops informing a tearful havoc that the Quiet Council has determined that the mannequin he brought back from Murder World can't stay on Krakoa with him. Could you imagine? <laughs> he brought the Madeline doll with him. Oh, that'd be wild if he, like, sits at a tables and stuff and makes people address it. Oh, boy. That could be, uh... <laughs> There's some trauma that might, uh, make, make Havoc's, uh, uh, you know, presence on the Hellions team make a bit more sense to us. But, uh, thank you so much for writing in about Hellions number 10 here. It's, a uh, quite the divisive issue, it seems. It's, and I like that. I like that a lot. I like where we can come at things from two different angles, or th- several different angles, I suppose, and have uh, varying levels of enjoyment. Not outright dismissing a book, or uh, outright touting a book as being the best thing ever. Even though the internet has taught us to think and analyze in hyperbole, we can still accept here on X Laughs that maybe things just might not be for everybody, and maybe we'll have different levels of appreciation. So thank you so much for writing in about that one, Evan. Now we're going to wrap up with Andrew, who's doing a day-and-date message about X-Factor number 9, the book we're covering today. He says, This issue sure is jam-packed with a compressed plot. I guess we can call it a bang-for-your-buck issue. I wish they could have at least made it a double-sized special. It's a damn shame that this book is done, but looking at what we have, it's odd that the two main storylines of this brief series are Mojo World and The Morrigan. Those don't exactly spring to mind if I think of Mutant Death Investigation Team. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. It's just really, really unfortunate that uh, I guess that these were the you know the big plot points that we started this series with here. It's maybe an indictment on just comics in 2020 and 2021. It's you gotta hit the ground running, right? You just don't have the time. There is no grace period for comics anymore. These things are very expensive. I'm sure they're expensive to produce and distribute. So, I mean, I'm sure with every single book they put out, it's kind of tight, right? So you got to hit the ground running. So despite the fact that X-Factor has an amazing premise and a really, really fun concept, maybe having the first few issues in Mojo World wasn't the best way to do it. I know if I wasn't a completionist, I wouldn't have bought those issues, you know, because I... I'm out there saying I don't like Mojo World. I don't like the Mojoverse. So I would not have uh, bought those issues if I wasn't a lunatic who has to buy everything with an X on it. And I'm guessing that people who are, you know, more well-adjusted out there who can leave books on the shelves if they don't want them, they might have actually done that. And when the sales came in, it was like, hey, this isn't going so hot. And then when you bring in something like the Morrigan here, which actually taps into some X-Factor lore from the last volume that people like me absolutely love, it's still kind of a deep cut. You know, I can appreciate that. And I'd assume if you're listening to an X-Men podcast, you probably can appreciate that as well. But uh, as for widespread appeal, I don't know that it's uh, really got that much, right? So yeah, an excellent concept for a series, but... The, you know, the two arcs that we launch with here are a little bit of a hard sell, I think, to the mainstream. So I think that's why this book might go down as one where the people who read it absolutely adored it, and those who didn't 
just assumed that it wouldn't be for them, or uh, maybe didn't even realize that it was a thing. Hmm, maybe X-Factor is the uh, X-lapsed of the the line here. I'm probably giving myself way too much credit there. Anyway, Andrew continues, I don't have much to say about this issue. It is what it is. I didn't dislike it per se, but it's just, and then, and then, and then sort of plot. I really like the art, and I guess the big plots were wrapped up all right. I like getting to hear what the Morgan's deal was, and now Krakoa owns Mojo World, I guess? I'm not sure what they really get out of that. Sadly, those plots weren't as interesting to me as the really great character stuff, which we get a little of this issue. A few good moments, though, like Rachel playing middleman between Northstar and Kyle about what to do for dinner. That bit made me smile. This was my first Leia Williams comic, and I'm grateful for it, because I now know that I really like her writing. Reading the banter in X-Factor often made me smile because I understood who her characters were. I think she's a very talented writer. I hope David Baldion sticks around because I really like the look of this series. In this issue, I feel he really brings his A-game with the panel layouts and page designs, not to mention the brief switch to ancient Celtic art during the Morrigan fight, which was also very cool. Anyway, it's still nice that Leia Williams seems to have had the time to wrap up her two big stories. I have no expectations for the final gala issue, so I just hope that afterwards these characters are still in the background, able to be picked back up by Williams or some other author, because there's still mysteries that I'd like to see resolved. Remember Aurora's mysterious death? (sighs) I'm sad this book is cancelled. I really hope we see these characters again, but Marvel seems determined to reject what little money I begrudgingly give them. Yeah, (laughs) that's very, very well put. This, too, was my first uh, Leia Williams comic, and um, I came into it, as folks who have listened to the show, I came into the, to it a, a bit hot and cold, right? Uh, the first issue, uh, there was a lot that I liked about it, but there was also a lot I didn't like about it. I felt like, uh, especially with the character of uh, Dakin, Dakin, I think there were a lot of shortcuts being taken to basically define him by his orientation and not anything else. And I worried that that was just going to become what the series was. I had no idea that uh, Leia Williams was going to flesh out Dakin Dakin into such a a good character, right? Uh, His relationships with everybody on the team have been an absolute joy to read. And I'm almost curious to go back and read that first issue to see if there were any, you know, breadcrumbs laid there or if it was just the kind of quick and dirty, this is your character, this is what you need to know about him sort of a thing. So yeah, I came into this not quite sure what to think. And then we got to that second issue, which I hated. <laughs> I was not a fan of that issue at all. And I was worried that, you know, uh-oh, maybe this isn't going to uh, be a book for me. And then I read, you know, subsequent issues of this series, out of obligation alone at first. And then I read Gwenpool, also by uh, Williams and Baldion, and... I got it. You know, I finally got it. I wasn't even really all that in on Baldeon's art style until like three or four issues in when I when it 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 grew on me to the point where it's like I don't want to see this book by any other artist because I think he has just nailed these characters here. And so is so is Ms. Williams here. It's just a wonderful, wonderful book, and uh it's going to be missed. It's going to be missed by, uh, basically, I think anybody who read it is going to miss it because it's, it was a special book. And we have so many mysteries that hopefully, uh, you know, as, as I said earlier and as you say here, hopefully we see these characters again. Hopefully these things are addressed and hopefully 
in five years' time, I won't be writing like a Usenet uh, fact post on uh, dangling X threads from the Jonathan Hickman run here and have them all be X Factor. <laughs> that would be quite unfortunate. Anyway, Andrew wraps up with So until people stop buying Excalibur and start buying some of the better books of the line instead, make mine X lapsed. Well, here's the thing people aren't really buying Excalibur. We don't have numbers again, of course. But it's at the bottom of the list. I think with Cable and X-Factor canceled, it will be the absolute lowest-selling book. Maybe maybe that's why they, they launched uh, X-Corp. So Excalibur won't be the lowest-selling book. Maybe it's all a big conspiracy. That book is out there to make Excalibur look better, so they have a reason not to cancel it. That's my theory. That's my hot take. <laughs> I would love to hear your thoughts on it. But uh, thank you so much for writing in about uh, about X-Factor and uh, allowing me to wax a little bit more on a book that uh, I think we're, we're all going to miss. So thank you so much for that. And I invite everyone to share their thoughts about uh, this dearly departing series, as well as any of the books in the line. Maybe give a tier list, anything you'd like to talk about. I would love to hear from each and every one of you. You can find me several different ways. On Twitter, I'm Ace Comics. On Instagram, I'm 90sXmen. Uh, you can shoot an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. You can join us on Facebook at 90sXmen, and you can listen to the entire archive of this show and every show that Reggie and I did together at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And as I've been saying a lot, if you like what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, I would love for you to uh, help me out a little bit. Help a fella out. Share the show. Spread the word. Let people know that it is a thing that exists. Don't, let's not let it become the, the X Factor of X-Men podcasts and just fade away into nothingness. It would really, really mean a lot to me. Speaking of which, it really means a lot to me that you'd spend oof, almost an hour with me today. You poor people. I'm so sorry it took so long, but uh, thank you all so, so much for sharing this extended amount of time with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Searching.